Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Hey Kids Comics. Here's our new opening credits. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey Kids Comics! The other set of new opening credits we're pondering. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Tell us which one you prefer, because we can't decide. Can we? No. You don't like either of them, do you? I'm not sure. Why are you not, what are you not one, sure about? Our first one told everything you needed to know and got it out of the way. I know, but we've had it for two years. You don't think it's time for a change? Maybe we should do requests. People email <laughs> in and say, I want this song. <laughs> People email in and ask what they want for the opening yeah. credit song. We have it different every week. Pain in the ass to edit. But yeah, and what if we don't have it? I think that's a terrible idea. We don't want to be too interactive. There's always the internet. In what know, way is there the internet? Illegally downloading it. And we don't encourage such behaviour now. We're owned by Demanzo. Ah, right. He doesn't. He doesn't. You know, he's not down with illegally downloading. Yeah. Buy your tapes then. Yeah, in the, we could only use what's on eight track. Yeah. So we're a bit out of luck though. Anyway, welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. For 2013, mm-hmm. because this is the first time we have sat down and recorded in 2014, isn't it? Or even 2013. I'm a year ahead. Because um, that excited. Yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this, but Avengers vs X Men was all recorded over December. Yeah. So for reasons of of ease for Michael, I'm Andrew Leyland, and I'm Michael Leyland. And if this is the first time you've listened, if you have joined the fold due to us leapfrogging onto the bandwagon that is the Two True Freaks internet radio show. We do this little show about comics. Yeah. I'm me. I'm the elder. And he's <laughs> the Michael the Younger. He's my son. I'm his dad. That's how these things normally work. And this cross-generational look at multi, multi, multiple... I can't speak tonight. No. Multiple comic books is what we've done for the past two years. To huge critical acclaim. Oh, yeah. We've won awards out the wazoo. And posters, there's posters of us. Yeah, posters. We we sell out huge auditoriums. Just sitting on a table reading comics that the audience can't see. <laughs> Actually, none of that is true. Yes. Is it? Sadly. Sadly, none of that is true. But we don't do it for fame and recognition. We do it for love. Because we can't get the fame and recognition. Because we can't get the fame and recognition. Um, I, we've we've kicked out Avengers vs X Men. We finished our lot of drivel. Yeah. Um, we quite liked it, didn't we? Yeah. We, we, we did. didn't think it sucked. We might return to it with Marvel now, won't we? We are considering doing a Marvel Now show. Yes. Yeah. Where we look at a number of different Marvel Now number ones. The question Superior with that. Superior Spider Man's going in there. Superior Spider Man, Captain America. Um, Hulk. Hulk, yes, which I like a great deal. Would you cover Avengers? No, because I hated it, just and I don't want to be negative. 
Um, and we could do the issue of Daredevil that will be branded Marvel now, but won't actually be number one. You want to cover another Mark Quaid? Because we've, we've done Daredevil number one. Go and look at the old issues on Two True Freaks. We did Daredevil number one. The old issues. The old epi- issue sorts. <laughs> actually, that may not be up yet. I don't know. The Daredevil one? Yeah. It won't be. Have we not got that yet in the, the I old... I don't think we're up to our origin. Yeah. Well, number ones. No, we're still in Nightfall. As this... Goes. When do we do number ones? Oh, I don't remember. It's such a long time ago. I know. Uh, anyway, we're going to start tonight with emails. We have a very special email that, that kicks off our coverage of Hellblazer, mm-hmm. which is what we will be doing tonight and next week. First of all, I need to publicly thank Mr. Stephen Lacey. Thank you, Stephen. What's he done that's deserved a public He sent me a Christmas present. Did it? The reason it's not been mentioned thus far, I know I'm tardy on this, but like I said, the Avengers vs. X-Men shows were all in the can in December. So this is the first time we've actually recorded an episode since Christmas, apart from the one we did on Boxing Day, yeah. wasn't it? So, so thank you, Stephen. He sent me two Fantastic Four comics, one of which is an old Bronze Age one that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And one was, I don't suppose you remember, Marvel did this little initiative thing where they published comics as they would be published in the Marvel Universe. So you know in the Marvel Universe, Marvel published Fantastic Four comics. Yeah. So if you were a member of the Fantastic Four and went to the shop and bought a Fantastic Four comic, that's the comic you would buy. Okay. And it had Paul Smith artwork and it was great and I enjoyed reading it. Okay. It was, it was very good. So thank you, Steve, that was very nice. Very, very pleasant surprise. Always nice to get stuff in the post it that is. isn't a bill. Yeah. So that was quite pleasant, so thank you very much. I felt a bit bad that... Four, four, well, yeah, that. But I felt a bit bad as well that four shows will have gone up before I thanked him. Yeah. But, you know, better late than never. Mm-hmm. Which is just an excuse for laziness, quite <laughs> frankly. It works. It works, yeah. So our emails tonight, we have a couple of emails tonight. People heeded the call yes. when we, we said nobody sent us any emails over Christmas. So we've quite a few tonight. We may not do well tonight, depending on, uh, on how it goes. Because obviously we do have to do the special one. I hope everyone thinks it's special. Our first email tonight is from Jay Ferguson called Random Ramblings. Hi, Jay. Been listening to a bunch of your episodes trying to catch myself up with all the silliness in the middle of the fourth episode of The Spotlight, which is funny in that it's Michael's birthday when you were doing the episode, but since I'm writing this and it just turned the clock to be my birthday as I've reached the ripe old age of 26. Well, happy birthday, Jay. We hope that you had an exceptionally good birthday. By the time you actually listen to this episode, it may be your next birthday. That's how these things tend to work. I love the clip of Morrison being interviewed, talking about why a lot of fanboy fanboy nitpicks just don't matter. Jay continues, So far as what age people are and that it sucks the fun out of it. And I think a lot of that is why I love Morrison so much, because anything can happen and craziness reigns. But I wouldn't want to make Andrew or Scott Gardner mad. Not to say I don't enjoy listening to both of you, Andrew and Scott, but you're wrong! Morrison opinions do get to be a bit much. I can understand that you may not like it as much as I do, but really, if you can maybe just unclench a little, maybe you'll enjoy it more. A bit like what Michael was saying about trying to pick up on everything in The Invisibles and finally just letting go and enjoying it. Thinking I will read some JLA and thank John Lennon. Oh, by the way, although you may not know everything about your American culture, your analysis of the Beatles' Jesus stuff is spot on. I think I have... I think I have coughed myself to death. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. I think I have unclenched... Grant Morrison, haven't I? I've come to just accept he's just another comic book writer. And some of his stuff I like and some of his stuff I don't like. Okay. I'm even tempted to read his Batman stuff. All of it? Yeah. Because I would imagine that it tells one long big tale, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm tempted to read some of that and see what I think of it. 
Just as a Batman story, irrespective yeah. of who's written it. If I didn't know he'd written it, I'd probably read it, wouldn't I? Yeah. And because of my ill-built, inbuilt prejudice, I've not read it. Mm-hmm. So I want to conquer my inbuilt prejudice and give the guy a first shake of the whip. Okay. And see whether well, I like it. All, all of it, yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll convince me to buy it, you all. I've only got two more hardbacks left. Mm. Once and out, yet. Yeah, okay. Uh, and another rant that will make me some more enemies, Alan Moore. I love Swamp Thing, and he's done lots of other stuff, but the man himself is, you know, a bit of an a-hole, who spent the last few decades slagging everyone off. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Right, yeah, yeah you're, you're not the biggest Alan Moore fan in the world, are you? No. I, I like some of his works. I like some of his works. I just, I like, I dislike those works when he says, oh, I don't want anyone writing my characters, but, oi, Invisible Man, come over here and rape this one. Well, the walls, I hate to say nice things about Grant Morrison, but I'm about to. <laughs> yeah. So here you go, Jay. <laughs> this is me unclenching. Um, Grant Morrison retorted to an interview that Alan called? Moore had given, didn't he? Yeah. Where Alan Moore has been repeating things about Morrison ad infinitum well, for years. What it was, it was an article about Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and it was just a reprint of it where Grant annotated it. Right, and, and Grant responded to all of his points and basically ripped them all to pieces. Yeah. And I actually thought that was quite funny. Yeah, was. That was that was one of the best things Grant Morrison's ever written. It was. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So that was fun. Where was that, if the lovely readers would like to check it out? Do you remember? I found it on Bleeding Cooler. Did you? I don't remember where it was. You sent me the link and said, you may like this. And I did. So that was quite good. Uh, Oh, and Andrew, continues Jay's email, you were saying that the Coronavore sounded like a John Pertwee villain's name, and it is. They show the old Doctor Who stuff in rotation on our PBS affiliate over here, and they're just about to show Robot. Yay! I watched watched part one and two of Robot the other day because Angela bought it on DVD. And it's... Fantastic! I love it. I love that first Tom Baker episode. So most of the Pertwee stuff is fresh in my mind, and I'm 90% sure the villain in the Time Monster was called the Chronovore. I think it was, actually. I think when I said that sounds like a Doctor Who villain, I knew it's full well that it was, was a Doctor Who villain. But, yeah. But I haven't seen a lot of John Pertwee. Yeah. I've only seen a couple of... I think I've seen most of the ones with Sarah Jane in, and the three Doctors, and I think that's it for John Pertwee. I don't think I've ever watched a lot of old Wurzel. On the subject of the Comics Code, continues Jay, I bought a Wolfman issue of Nightwing with the seal on from After Infinite Crisis with an opening splash page that had more blood than an Evil Dead movie. Those dudes were asleep at the wheel. I'm well tired now, and I am going to try and get some rest. Be well, and I shall send more incomprehensible correspondence when the mood strikes me. Perhaps very soon, or perhaps in a while. Be well, Leylands. You too, Jay. Thank you very much for emailing. a lot of blood. More than an Evil Dead movie. That's quite substantial. What do you think of the Evil Dead remake? That much, eh? On the fence. Oh, yeah. Looks, it looks decent, but then I remember it's an Evil Dead remake. Mm. If it was its own Isn't film... Isn't it? Haven't they called it a sidequel? I've no idea. In that it's not a sequel and it's not a remake. Because it looks the guys, like a remake. the guy's argument is you can't remake Evil Dead because they've well, already remade Evil Dead. His movie is remake. He said Evil Dead 2 is a remake of Evil Dead. Arguably, the first five minutes is a remake so, of it. Because I know you're a big Evil Dead fan, I just wanted to know what you, it, what you thought of the remake. I think it would be better if it was its own film, because I know it's an Evil Dead sidequel. <laughs> so would you still call it Evil Dead, though? Or would you call it something like Evil Dead Revisited? Well, I don't, it's, it's the same plot. Right, the first so... One. It's the same characters as the first one. Everything happens in the first one, but they've amped up the CGI in the go. Right. There's no CGI in it. 
There is. Apparently, there is very little CGI in it. It looks like an awful lot. Apparently, they're doing all practical in-camera effects. Well, okay, but it looks like it. Alright, You know he's kept in the tree rape scene. You have to keep in a tree rape scene if you're doing Evil Dead. But he's kept it in. It's in the trailer. Alright, fair enough. The actual rape scene is in the trailer. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. <laughs> Could you not call it Dead Evil? Yes, you could call it Dead Evil. That would be brilliant. I quite like the name Dead Evil. Dear Sam Raimi's production company, my wife thinks you should call your Evil Dead remake Dead Evil. And thus Just we to, shall. And thus we shall. <laughs> Make it so. <laughs> I think you should change the name I of... I suggest... Bye. I think you should change Tiger Bread to Giraffe Bread. <laughs> you did oh, that, actually, didn't they? they yes. They changed, the, they changed the name. Is that official? I don't know. I'm to be honest with you. Our next email is called Happy 2013. It's from Damien Lee. Hello, Damien. Hello. Morning, Leyland's of the future. Morning, Damien of the past. Or afternoon or evening. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> 2013 and still no hoverboards. Back to the Future 2 raised my expectations far too high, clearly. We've got two more years left. Two more years for us to get hoverboards. We do have hoverboards, actually. Just can't put any weight on them and then they fall down. That's not a bloody hoverboard, then, is it? It is until you stand on it. That's that's just a board. <laughs> it hovers, clearly. though. Brilliant. Where's my flying car, then? That's <laughs> what I want. Um... Damien's email continues, I'm listening to your A vs. X podcast, broadcast from your new home as I type. Do you like our new home? It's, yeah. The 70s decor's a bit much, isn't it? Brown. Mm. I'm not a big fan of brown. Mm. I like it, it's very plush. Mm. Very comfortable. I can see why some people fall asleep when they're on the Two True Freaks shows. <laughs> very comfy chair, I have to say. Uh, Damien's email continues. Is uh, it a cockroach? <laughs> oh, no, not in here. Demonzo can afford cleaners. Uh, for some reason, your dead week won't work for me. Sob. I don't like that, that a podcast doesn't work. <laughs> if anyone else has had problems with that one, let me know. It needs to do batteries, I think. It does, yeah. Uh, loved your Christmas episode, continues Damien, mostly for coverage of the Marvel team-up issue. I was about ten. I got a second-hand copy of the Marvel UK reprint of this that I've reread many times over the years and absolutely love. You're absolutely right. Of course I am. That goes without saying, doesn't it? Byrne looks superb in black and white, but then he looks superb most of the time. You mentioned briefly not being a fan of Next Men. I never did. I'm sorry, that may have been you. No, I said I liked it. Did you? Yeah. Oh, well, if we said that, we're wrong, because John Byrne's Next Men, <laughs> certainly the initial run is some of the best stuff he's ever done, in my opinion. I wish he'd carried on down the creator-owned route. I really yeah. do. Has he not? No, not really. He kind of is now. He's at yeah. IDW. Trio. But Trio was terrible. But the thing he did before that, like a spy thing, was it Secret Agent or something? Was Cold, really good. Cold War yeah. was really good. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's very strange. Um, Damien continues, I'd strongly recommend reading the whole thing over a few days. It's phenomenally good stuff. I've been holding off the recent IDW John Burns Next Men series, mainly due to, you know, being an impoverished, newly qualified teacher. But I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, it's dark, but it's also a great expression of Burns' talent for storytelling on a broad canvas. Plus, the letters page are of huge entertainment value, often six-plus pages of them. The Danger Unlimited mini he did at the same time, sadly ending on a cliffhanger, was brilliant too. Yeah, I like Danger Unlimited. Your sister likes Babe. She's always asking me to get that down so she can read it again. Yeah. She really likes that one. Make sure you read his 21-12 one-shot before John Byrne's Next Men, though, as it all ties together brilliantly. I'd pay to listen to you spend a few episodes on Next Men. Hell, I'd volunteer to contribute in some way. We have thought about doing some Next Men. 
all of I them. think Scott Gardner and I have talked about doing next men as well. Yeah. So we may do, we should arrange a cross pollination. We should. Of some description. Demanzo tie in. A demanzo tie in, yeah. I just read A versus X for my shame on a pirated iPad form. Yeah. In my defence, I never use pirated stuff, that's what they all say. But was so burnt wasting money on fear itself that I want to see if it was any good before buying it. Suffice to say I'll be buying the Panini fifteen pound paperback instead of the Marvel thirty two pound hardback, put it that way. Cyclops behaviour may have been prefigured in Children's Crusade, but he still behaved absurdly. You are somehow managing to make the A versus X between pages fights interesting, but I think I'll skip them. You seem to be enjoying it rather more than I did, to be honest. It all seemed padded, even in just the core twelve issues. I did love some of the art, Adam Kubert aside, and wholeheartedly agree about John Romita Jr. I've read a lot of criticism of him on this series, and yes, some of the faces were a bit off, or left for the Incas to do perhaps, but you're right. He does kapow action better than pretty much anyone else. Um, see, I don't know. I ended up really enjoying Avengers vs. X-Men more than I thought I would. So did I. You um, enjoyed it more than I thought you would. Yeah, you, I enjoyed it more than you thought I would. And I do wonder if some of that was because I read it over Christmas and was therefore feeling happy. <laughs> if you read it, like, before Christmas. Yeah, yeah, I may have been a lot meaner to it. Yeah. And I certainly felt like I could have been meaner to it. But I didn't want to be mean to it for the sake of being mean to it. Because it does redeem itself. At yeah, points. and in the reading of it, I was enjoying it. I wasn't sat there going, this makes no sense! Yeah. I was reading it going, come on, Spider-Man, club Colossus around the head. Which is what I wanted to see from that kind of crossover, and that's what I got. With a name like Versus. Yeah, so, so I, was, I was moderately pleased with it. Uh, Damien continues, Oh, my continuing mission to ensure my little one loves comics continues apace. We've been mixing comics with films and she's now in love with any version of Spider-Man. Ha! My kind of father. You get my father's seal of approval, though. Give us 6098 to 700. No, don't. Stick with Ditko. Um, Really? Yeah. Ditko? Yeah. Get out! I can can sit in this plush Dimanzo apartment on my own, you know. (laughs) Talking to myself. I'll load up the submarine. She even came back from a birthday party, he carries on, earlier today with her face painted as Spider-Man. Badly, as she pointed out. Always a critic. I also scored dad points by finding a Tomb Raider comic for her after we watched the first film, which she loved, drawn by Michael Turner back at the end of the 90s. Oh, yeah, I, found, I found some of them. Are they good? Well, I don't know. I wasn't looking at the story. No, oh, right, just looking at Michael Turner's pretty art. Well, yeah. These uh, women are too skinny, man. <laughs> Two cool things in one. The female indie knockoff in comic form... Well done, Daddy. We applaud you, Damien. Spread the love to the next generation. Finally, a note of sadness. I'm sure you're following the news about Peter David. And as you're a public forum, just wanted to take this opportunity to wish him and his family well and hope he makes a speedy recovery. His writing has been a massive, massive part in my comics reading and therefore life. His Hulk is the Hulk for me and I'm sure for many others. And I look forward to his return to using his talent. His wife is appealing for support with medical bills at www.peterdavid.net. Yeah, a whole heartedly... said you can help him by buying his books? Yeah, pretty much. That's fair enough. Yeah. And buy his creator-owned stuff through his own website. He gets more money. Yeah. So we heartily approve of that. I was looking at some of that. I may buy Picking Up Steaks, okay. which looks very Buffy-esque. Yeah. And therefore quite interesting. But yeah, uh, we're just going to echo everything Damien just said. We devoted an entire episode to Peter David, because I love him. And get well soon, Peter. Uh, oh, why were you? Mm-hmm. On Boxing Day, we were also very saddened by the death of Jerry Anderson. Maybe you weren't. I don't know who he is. But I was. It, I don't see how you can grow up in England in between the 50s and the 90s and not know who Jerry Anderson was. From the 50s, Supercar, 
and Torchy the battery boy into his 60s heyday with Thunderbirds Stingray Captain oh, Scarlet right. okay. which was awesome yeah. to his foray into live action in the 70s with Space 1999 and my favourite UFO into the 80s with Terror Hawks goes on and on so sadly we lost Jerry Anderson over Christmas as well so that was a bit of a downer but we'll carry on with Damien's email and plunder on forward thanks for almost a year of great listening I first heard you back in April 2012 and didn't realise for a few episodes that you were father and son and I look forward to many more keep spreading the love Damien you're very welcome Damien I'm glad you're enjoying the show mm-hmm. hope you continue to do so and continue to show your comics reading goodness with your daughter because uh, I'm trying to rope Anya into one of the Superman shows. Yes, you are. So I'm hoping that that pans out for us. Our next email is from Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie Niemeyer is just titled Thoughts. In the latest episode, you asked for our thoughts, so here are some I'm having currently. Number one, I think it takes more than three licks to get to the Tootsie Roll centre of a Tootsie Pop, but since I don't like Tootsie Pops, I suppose I'll truly never know. I'm sure that made sense to somebody somewhere, but not to us. The adverts? What's How the adverts? that take to get to the centre of a Tootie Pops something. What's, what advert is this? The advert for the Tootie Pops. I don't know what a Tootie Pop is. It's like a lollipop. And how do you know this? Because, I don't know. I oh, wow, Adam wants to be on the show. It was that thing with the owl and the kid, and it was like, yeah, it's, it's an how owl. many licks does it take to get to the centre of a Tootsie Pop? And he licks it three times and then just bites it. It's like, the world will never know. <laughs> well, thank you for Adam popped up for the first time in over a year and was able to help us with something. Thank you, Adam. Doesn't exactly tell us where it came from. No. Different owl. You know, it helps, doesn't it? Number two, I wonder who sings the Ronry song. Sounds a bit like Adam Sandler. Hmm. Well, it's from it's, Team America World. Please. It's Cartman. Is it Cartman? It? Is Cartman yeah. Trey or Matt? No idea. It's one of them. It's Matt Parker or Trey Stone. Mm. Or is it the way around? Matt Stone and Trey Parker. I always get it mixed up. It's one of them. Number three, I wonder if they even have Tootsie Rolls and Tootsie Pops over in the UK. Will they even understand the dilemma? No, we don't, but apparently my children know what they are, so <laughs> fur dues. Number three, I'm glad they're going over Avengers vs. X-Men so I don't have to read it. <laughs> He's put three twice. Always happy to oblige. You see, as he's put three twice. <laughs> Brilliant. Number four, Andrew has a weird comic organisation system. Yeah. Then again, maybe my American brain just can't grasp the UK way of thinking. No, I have a weird comic organisation. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, I really should get back to... Hey, there's a squirrel. Number six, shouldn't the squirrels be hibernating now? They Number do seven. Because they do not like the cone of shame. They do not like the cone of shame. Are there squirrels in the UK? Yes, we have squirrels. Yes. If there are, they should be hibernating. Yes, they probably should be. Number nine, I wonder if Luke Giaconetti will be writing in since they asked for emails. I hope so. I miss Luke's emails. Mm. Come on, Luke, send us an email. I know you're busy. But, you know, if you're travelling, surely occasionally you must go on public transport or a plane or something. Write us an email then. Yeah. Yes. Number ten, I wonder if they've noticed I've misspelled the word writing in the last thought. Well, I did, (laughs) but it's audio, so you would have got away with it. (laughs) Number eleven, I still need to get back to work. What, instead of writing to us? I don't think you do. Yeah, what's more important? Yeah. Number 12, I hope this is enough thoughts. Never enough thoughts. Number 13, what if it isn't? Number 14, I'm thirsty. Oh, that's enough for you guys. I'm Michael, nice to meet you. Charlie. (laughs) We like that email. 
Yeah. That was funny. I like that, Charlie. Our next email is from Bobby Cookley. Re- rebellion, bitterness and literary metaphors. Hey, Leylands. Hello, Bobby. Firstly, I agree that Cyclops was an out-and-out jerk and very petty to Captain America in the first issue of Avengers vs. X-Men. If Cyclops had said, it has to be Hope's decision to cap, I would have respected him a little. During the series, I wondered if Cyclops was thinking, this time I'm going to be the rebellious bad boy who goes against the system and does what he wants and won't play by your rules! His behaviour in all new X-Men is also rebellion for rebellion's sake, which he seems to justify by Wolverine now being Professor Logan. Cyclops' behaviour can be slightly justified if his bitterness has finally got the better of him, especially over how everyone hates the X-Men and loves the Avengers. That never made any sense to me, unless Marvel is saying people hating the X-Men doesn't make sense because racism and prejudice don't make any sense. But superhero comics are really that subtle. Gotta give them credit if they are being, though. Yeah. That would be genius. Second, I agree with you that Civil War was a good idea badly executed, but it could have been worse, as originally Captain America was pro-registration and Iron Man anti-registration. Mark Miller and other creators decided that the other way around made more sense given their characters and history, but that led to Civil War becoming class warfare, with the rich pro-registration heroes on one side and the poor anti-registration heroes on the other. To misuse literary metaphors, Tony Stark isn't John Galt and Steve Rogers isn't Tom Yode. Finally, your mention of Jim Shooter bringing the Peter Parker Mary Jane marriage into the main Spider-Man books got me to thinking. Jim Shooter gained a lot of enmity at Marvel Comics, and after he left, they worked to undo retcon and deconstruct many of his stories or ideas. Could undoing the Spider marriage be the last insult to Shooter almost 20 years later? Unlikely, I'll admit. Of course, saying Peter Parker can't be married because someone is always going to need Spider-Man to save them doesn't make much sense either. Good work as usual, Bobby C. Should we go into another Spider-Man... Married rant, or have I have I played that out? You could, if you. Whereas want. I just don't think Marvel have known what to do with Spider-Man for easily the past ten years, mm-hmm. and the marriage was symptomatic of that. But getting rid of the marriage hasn't fixed the problem. No, has it? Wasn't there a two before the Straczynski run where they were married but not together? Yeah, they were separated. Yeah. Which didn't fix the problem either, did it? No. So anyway, thank you, Bobby. Thank you for emailing. It was good that. Our next email is from. Robert Ludwig, congratulations on the move. Well, thank you very much. It was relatively painless, wasn't it? Mostly. The guys showed up, they loaded everything in a truck, they moved us into the swanky 70s digs. It was all good. Mm-hmm. Hi, Andrew and Michael. Hi, Robert. I think Robert's a new emailer. I do think so, too. Excellent. We approve of new emailers, but we like our old emailers as well. We do. So there's no prejudice, but it's always nice to hear from new people. First off, congratulations on moving to the Two True Freaks Network. Now I'll actually be caught up on your shows. I've been downloading to my iPad, but since an iPad is not as easy to lug around as an iPod, I get behind. Other listening devices from other companies are available. I'm still listening to shows back in June, Spider-Man month. Second, I believe it should always be Andrew and Michael in the greetings, for two reasons mostly. The first is age before... Well, I can't really say beauty, because let's face it, you have faces for radio. The second is that Andrew is closer in age to me. I'm going to be 39 this year. Can't believe it. However, I can still give the wife grief because she's older and turned 40 last year. <laughs> third, I'm so glad to hear of another person on the interwebs who was more of a Marvel person than a DC person. I will admit I'm very new to DC. I'm mainly a Spider-Man fan and have been since a kid. I still do not know a lot about DC and their characters. I've read both the novel and the trade paperback of Death and Return of Superman. I do not have the trade funeral for a friend, though. I have also read Nightfall, although it has been 15 plus years since I did. I just got the trades for Nightfall for Christmas from my wife and son. I still have to get the Night's Quest trade. Luckily, I have a birthday coming soon. Fourth, I really don't know why I'm doing this as a list, but hey, once you stop, you might as well keep going. I do not remember if it was on your show or the Batman Returns show on Bailey's Batman podcast, but I believe that you made two funny comments references. The first is about the Warner Brothers and their sister Dot. 
I used to love that show. A TV channel called The Hub has just started to show Animaniacs around dinner time. I might be able to catch a show here or there. The second is I believe you and Mike were talking about people talking back to podcasts. I do it all the time. I laugh out loud and, when comments, and make comments to myself. Sorry. Since I can listen to my iPod at work, the people at work have learned to ignore my laughs or comments when they see I'm wearing headphones. Yes, I still wear headphones because the earbuds physically hurt my ears. Yeah, I've done that when I've been out running. Laughed at a podcast and you can't run and laugh at the same time. Mm. Don't work. Anyway, to wrap up a long email that will completely embarrass me when read, congratulations again on the move and keep up the good work. You can find me on the Two True Freaks section of Forum for Geeks as Booba9, Robert. Well, thank you very much, Robert. It was nice to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it does seem like there are more podcasts about DC than Marvel. Or certainly yeah. the ones that I listen to seem more centred around the DC family of heroes than Marvel. But we're here to redress the balance. Yes, by Although, doing Batman shows. By doing 17-week Batman shows and an upcoming Happy Birthday Superman that's going to be seven weeks long. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that balance still needs redressing. Yes. Uh, P.S. It's spelt colour with no U. <laughs> no! No, it isn't, you funny colonial man. No, 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 no. I like how you, you amuse me with this, these incorrect spellings that you've made up that you think are somehow correct. <laughs> Oh, dear me. No, 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 no. Uh, And that about wraps it up for tonight. Apart from a very special email that we are going to get into after this break. Yeah. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics. and the 90s, saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow. The Last Son of Krypton. The Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling 
Superman, Superman at 75. The celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics to the movies to the television series and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a fortress of Bailey Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com And we're back! In action. That was, it's better than being back in in action. Mm. That was quite a, 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 a dramatic and we're back, wasn't it? It's because you were awake now to begin with the year. You're not as tired out. Doing the email section has woke me up. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Our final message tonight, so strictly speaking an email, is from Ben Rush. Ben's a long-time listener of the show, long-time commentator on Facebook, although I don't think he's ever actually emailed in before. Around this time, Ben and his lovely bride-to-be, Edel, should be getting married. So a big congratulations to both of you. We hope you have a lovely day mm-hmm. and everything goes swimmingly. Marriage is a rough day, really. It's a very tiring day. Is it? All things considered, yeah. What, lounging around and watching the Hulk? Well, that's what I did on the wedding day. <laughs> Other people are busy, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, when we mentioned that we were doing a, a Hellblazer farewell episode, which has become two parts because Michael couldn't whittle down the, the comics that he wanted to cover, so it's now going to be a two-parter. Mm. Ben was very upset, not by I was doing the yeah. show, but by the cancellation of Hellblazer. And to wit, he sent us this lovely message. Mm-hmm. The last will and testament of a Hellblazer fan. Na, na, na. I of unsound mind and Guinness racked body do hereby moan his arse off about the treatment of A. John Constantine. To best start this, I think a bit of history is in order, so I will riff off Michael Bailey for a moment. My friendship started with John in 1988 when I did my schoolwork experience at Titan Distributors, which is now known to all as Diamond. It was unpaid work, so during the morning I would unpack and sort orders of comics to send to stores, and in the afternoon spend time in the storehouse sorting through boxes of stock, sometimes finding whole sets of Watchmen or Dark Knight. Yes, I grabbed a set of both. Because I wasn't paid, I was allowed a certain amount of free stuff. First thing I grabbed was a set of the Swamp Thing trades by a certain Mr. Moore, where my love for the DC Dark books began. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool job. Even if you don't get paid, you get paid in comics. You can't pay your rent with comics, though. No, but the good. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I'd rather be paid in comics than money. Well, well I, you do. You don't get pocket money, you get comics. <laughs> yeah. so. Later, Ben continues, at the UK Comic Art Convention, where these were the days where you could talk to the all-stars of comics all day, all night, i.e. John Byrne, Jim Lee, Denny O'Neill, I got to know John McCrea, and because of him, Ennis, Dylan, Fabric, and many adventures happened because of this. And he's then inserted a picture of John in flagrante, with um, a young woman. It's, uh... Yes, it's, it's very nice. He's doing... We'll be, um, we'll be missing that in Constantine. We will be missing John doing a lesbian in Constantine. Well, 
Close, but not quite, smiley face. But art students are a hell of a lot of fun. Oh, we are. <laughs> we mix with all types of people. You we're, do. We're a threat to society. Art students are... are, are when, when, they, when they're not being pretentious, art students are fun. So we're not at all. No, no, most <laughs> of you are all right. There's a couple that, you know. Right, back to John, says Ben. It was meeting these gents what brought me back to that flash bastard. I bought an entire run up to that date within weeks and devoured them fast, and found that he'd moved on from the cocky git we saw in Swamp Thing. He now had friends, family, a history, and Delano stories were set in a London I saw every day, which felt so much more real than the cape and spandex lot. It also had a lot of the same tropes of horror and fantasy novels I was reading at the time, and my youth, and some of the ladies in my life as well. And then came the Ennis, blood and Guinness-covered fun, this was the best of the books he and Dylan did. I like Preacher, whereas I love Hellblazer. This was a more down-to-earth John, where his weirdness was matched by his normal trappings, his Batman and Robin-like relationship with Chaz, and of course the creation of Kit Ryan, the perfect woman for him until Piffy came along. I still think Kit would win on this one. Well, down to the moans. When I first heard about the ending of Hellblazer, I thought it was a joke. Then I double-checked my calendar. Nope, not April 1st. And then the bile bubbled. I went straight to Dan DiDio's Facebook wall and left a message for him. And got this reply. Dan said, Hagfeld promised that we will continue to do the character right. <laughs> get Mike Bailey to do it. Yeah, get Mike Bailey to do this. He does it much better than I do. Robert Vendetti is the perfect guy for the new series. Then later, he put this up. I'm getting a number of messages and notes on the cancellation of Hellblazer. This was not an easy decision, and I'd like to say there's a natural conclusion to the Constantine storyline in the Hellblazer series. Number 300 will be as special to you as you would expect it to be. Hellblazer's had a long and incredible successful run, and that's a tip of the hat to all the great creators that have worked on the book over the years. The new Constantine series will return him back to his roots in the DCU, and hopefully be the start of another incredible run. Thanks for all your thoughts and support. Best, DD. Uh, you know, I, I love you, J. John Jameson, pointing. <laughs> Especially since it's audio people yeah. cast. You throw yourself into the role, man. You were here when I did the William Shatner, Peter David rendition. Yes. I became the character. <laughs> I didn't just read it, dude. You became the Shat. I became the Shat, who became the Kirk. <laughs> I became two people. You became the Shat. <laughs> yes. Carrying on with Ben's lovely email. <clears throat> With comments online about low sales, which Vertigo's always had until the trades, I was dismayed, and the rumours of it happening were tooted 18 months earlier, but no one would believe what DC would do. I was still unhappy when I went to Twitter and saw Constantine Gate, where writers, artists and fans went ape and it got me thinking without this book there would be no Vertigo, no Preacher. Most of DC's mature readers' line would never have got a kickstart it needed. Also, Hellblazer was well-known steps in the British comics industry after 2000 AD to reach the US market. Asked the aforementioned Garth Ennis. I and the many other fans of the book had grown older with John over the years, unlike Peter, Bruce or Clark who stay at the same age, even though they should have a free bus pass, where John would claim his fuel allowance soon. This was a major difference to readers like me, who fall out of love of supers every couple of years. Also, having a book set in places you knew and walked around every day and drank in was great. Anyway, I found the new writer on Twitter and by this point I'm sure he'd been bombarded by fans. Gasp, he was an American! last one who wrote John was utter toss. The worries grew. So I asked him a simple question. Robert Vendetta, 1Q, how are you planning to keep the very British voice and feeling in the book? Robert Vendetta answered, by studying what came before. Hmm, continues Ben. I thought, okay, fair enough. Answer, give him a break, how bad can it be? 
Then the news came that John is moving to New York forever. So my first thought was, you utter lying bag lazy And then I came down off the ceiling. It was utter London and England is a central part of the book and the soul of John, and it seemed to be a cop-out for a lazy writer and artist team who don't want to do the extra work to keep the book. But then I voiced a comment about this that I would get often, that Alan Moore had him start in New York on Swamp Thing. Fair enough, I would say, but that was nearly 30 years ago, and John has grown so much since then. And then the first cover came along. What the hell is this when it became Twilight Light and those f***ing shoes and socks? interview with Jeff Lemire, pointing his love for the movie. And then Justice League Dark came to the fateful issues with a new tosser. It just disappoints me Constantine actually takes Nick Necro seriously as a threat, instead of just making fun of him. I mean, come on, his name is Nick Necro and he looks like Keanu Reeves. A certain leather-clad magician is now the love of his life, and then be told by Muppets who never read the book that this was truth. 20-odd years of story. I was not bothered about the new 52 because I had my safe place in London with John, with a pint and a gin and tonic for John and 20 silk cut. So by the looks of it, the week after I get married I will be saying goodbye to one of the few books I've read for over 20 years, and I get the feeling I will be saying goodbye to superhero books again for a while. I think I'll stick to books like Saga, where the creators have the power. Goodbye John, Piffy, Chaz, and the rest of the gang. May the many pints of magic stout be awaiting you. Thank you, Ben. That was such a lovely email, wasn't it? Yes. That, um, I, I disagree with bits, but yeah. What bits do you disagree with? Um, well... You make uh, yourself comfortable. Yeah. Well, no, I, I agree with a lot of it. Yes. Because it's very sad news. Yes. But the bit about John coming to New York... Yes. He has been for a long time. It was he been in New York in Justice League Dark? Yeah. Right. From the very start. Right. It's always been there. But I think he, he had a problem with that from the start, didn't he, did Ben? Yeah, so, but I mean, it, it's just been though that he's moved to New York. Yes, because it's a comic. New yes. York's where everything goes down. Yeah, but that's but Ben's um, argument is it shouldn't be where everything happens. It doesn't have to be where everything happens. Yes, but well, okay, but that's just how it's been. Mm. And then there's there's the Jeff Lemire characterization and all that. Yes, which I think Jeff Lemire's characterization is very well, very good. But he didn't start writing it. Peter Milligan did, who is right, who is finishing off Hellblazer and has been writing it for like fifty issues now. Mm. So it, it wasn't Jeff Lemire who wrote him like that. And then the thing about Zatanna is he's always had a non-off relationship. With he has Zatanna. in one of the issues we'll be covering tonight. And um, books of magic. Yeah. As well. Right. Okay, fair enough. No, the thing I liked about that email was it was nice to see the other side of the fence because there's a lot of us that got bent out of shape by Spider Man and Murray Jane's deal with Mephisto and One yeah. New Day and Brand New Day and how can they do this? And you very rarely hear Vertigo fans do this. Mm. Very rarely do Vertigo fans get shafted, for want of a better word. Yeah. And it was nice to hear from somebody that is feeling pretty much what fans of the New 52, or previous DC, thought when that happened, that Hellblazer is coming to an end. And I know people say, well, your back issues are always there, but yes, they are, but you've read them. Yeah. You want new stories. Mm. That's that's what the New 52 is for, and it's good for, really. It's new stories. Yeah, but some of it's not very good, is it? There is that. But with with John Constantine, it's like 
I, I'm quite happy that John Constantine's part of the mainstream DCU mm-hmm. because he's in a book that I read monthly. I mean, we've never read Hellblazer monthly. I used to. You used to, but we don't anymore. Yeah. And I haven't, so I'm now reading John Constantine monthly in a book I enjoy. So you're looking forward to I enjoy. Constantine. So I'm enjoying that. Right. Um, but with... And it's him being younger. The only reason he cancelled Hellblazer is because he's 52 years old. In is he still aging? Well, he can't be aging in real time if he was 40 in 1993. Can he? If he's 52 now, they've slowed his aging down slightly. Um, yeah. When Ennis was writing the book, he was given a very definite birth date. When Delano was. And he was aging in real time. His 40th birthday was 40 years on from when he was born. Yeah. And his youth was all around the punk movement which pinned him as being in his teens, 20s, in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And that was very which much was part of his character. Peter Milligan and she had the changing man. Well, as Peter Milligan de-aged him slightly. No, it was just... Um, what he did was he, he foolishly made the mistake of writing the same scene very in like detail that when he rewrote it later, it contradicted itself. In Milligan? Yeah. Contradict his own work? Yeah. Right. And she had the changing man. Um, they go crazy in the hotel right. and it attracts John to them but at the beginning of that issue John Constantine is in a pub complaining about Thatcher getting into office because that's the day she was voted in so that'll be 1979 um, 1979 yeah and he had his coat and was like say 30 mm. right yeah then later in his run on Hellblazer mm. it's the same story well, it's the same day. He's in a pub, complaining about Thatcher being in office on the day she was voted in. Well, that was a mistake. As a teenager, wearing his punk stuff. Bully Willoughby. Isn't his birthday... Isn't his birthday 1953? He's yeah. the same age as my mum. Yeah. So he was born in 53. Mm-hmm. So he will have been in his mid to late 20s in 1979. Yeah. But it's just that's always irked me. That he made that, that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, they've cancelled it because he's 52. Mm. Well, because he's in the DCU now, so he's important, and thus any other rendition of him is null and void. Yeah. And because of that, it's you know I didn't see the need for the cancellation. They've got several Batman and Superman titles that are all separated from each other, so why can't they have two different... Why can't they leave the Vertigo yeah. book alone? Yeah. But And, and the thing with it is... Water, like Constantine is just going to be the watered down version it's not going to have the soul that Hellblazer did it's just it's not going to be able to be as risque as Hellblazer Didio it can probably be Hellblazer. violent yeah but Didio seems to confuse violence with maturity mm. as we will see in these four issues that we're going to cover very none of them in fact are violent are they maybe no. issue 11 could but be considered a bit violent violence Bundled on a mature level. Yeah, well, that's that's where Hellblazer always scored. It was a very British kind of horror. It was, it was very. Horror. It was creepy horror. It was Lovecraftian horror. Yeah. It was Clive Barker horror, rather than blood and guts and gore. DC horror. Yeah, which is what DDO is very proud of the maturity he's brought to the DC universe. With the maturity that eleven-year-olds handle. Yeah, whereas we've discussed before, violence isn't maturity. Mm. It can be. It can be, but it isn't the sole point of... the DODC. Yes. 
So, anyway, we've, we've rambled on for a considerable amount of time without actually getting to the comics that yeah. we're going to discuss tonight. So, with that in mind, this is Michael's baby again. So, after Avengers vs. X-Men, Michael's taken us down the darker roads again. So, again, he's editing, again, he's scripted. My boy done good. Mm-hmm. Okie dokie. So, take it away. Well, as it's been pointed out, November 2012 came and brought with it some very sad news the cancellation of Vertigo title Hellblazer. Hellblazer, along with several other titles, including Sandman, Preacher, and even Shade the Changing Man, set Vertigo's image. And Hellblazer has been the longest-running Vertigo title ever, and arguably the most important. I think it became a Vertigo title at issue 63. Hmm. Yes. Hellblazer started in 1988, after John's first appearance in 1985, in the pages of Swamp Thing 37 having been created by Alan Moore. Originally titled Hellraiser, the name had to be changed due to the then-upcoming Clive Barker movie of the same name. As of writing this, Hellblazer is a 299 issues, a special, two annuals, three graphic novels, five miniseries, three Winter's Edge shots, a short story in the 9-11 Memorial special, one short story in Vertigo Jam, two short stories in House of Mystery Halloween specials, and a secret files, and a story only published in Vertigo Resurrected. It's quite a back catalogue. It's quite a back catalogue. Then the new 52 happened. And with that, John appeared younger and single and on a team, the Justice League Dark, written by his Hellblazer writer, Peter Milligan. Because of this, DC wanted John in one universe to avoid confusion, I guess. So who better to get rid of, the married old man or the single young man? Oh, gee, let me me (laughs) think. Uh, Let's weigh this up, should we? The real world, where people do get older and put a bit of weight on and get married, or the DC New 52, where no one is allowed to be over 25 and everyone looks real pretty. Have a look. Yeah. They didn't cancel Hellblazer. (laughs) The Vertigo one stayed. That's my guess. Yes. (laughs) Oh, next week! (laughs) So this year marks the end of Hellblazer with issue 300 and the start of Constantine, DC's mainstream, family-friendly Hellblazer. Because of this, we at Hey Kids Comics decided to do an episode to look back on Hellblazer. And it became two episodes. On Vertigo, DC, and comics as a whole. Then we decided to do (laughs) two episodes. Then three, then two again. (laughs) So we begin in the best of places to start. Issue 1. We start here because we decided to stick to Hellblazer only. Yes. Not Justice League Dark or Swamp Thing or anything else John Constantine related. Well, Hellblazer. it's our farewell to Hellblazer. I mean, yeah. I suppose we could have done his first appearance in Swamp Thing. But since neither you or I have ever read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing... Yeah. There was a feeling, certainly from me, that we wouldn't have been able to give that any context. Mm. At least we've read multiple issues of Hellblazer. I've certainly read the first hundred and odd issues. You've pretty much read the whole thing. Not really. I stopped um, just after Ennis's run. I, I read a couple of issues of the Sean Phillips stuff. Right. See, I followed... I read most of Delano's stuff, but it wasn't really for me. Mm-hmm. But I liked Ennis's run. I carried on reading it through... Was it Mike Curry next after Ennis? No, that was a long. Who was next long after long. Ennis? I've no idea. I can't for the life of me remember who was next after Ennis, but I read most of his. Paul Jenkins. Yeah, it's Paul Jenkins. I read most of Paul Jenkins' stuff and into the Warren Ellis stuff, hmm. and then I just kind of drifted away. I didn't think it. It wasn't because the boot went bad or anything. It was just one of those yeah. drifted away things, and I just never went back. 
So I've not read any of the Peter Milligan more recent stuff. <laughs> the last stuff I read, I'd shaved the changing man in it. Right. And they were all going crazy, and John was going crazy, and he was going to get married. Right. Okay. They are republishing all those trade paperbacks. They are, so. and they all have new covers, which is really cool. How many issues are in a trade? I have no idea. I think they're reprinting the, the, the old trades. Mm. They put them Spruced in them up a bit. chronological order. So the like would contain the odd one or two issues that weren't in the original trade. That'll be a heck of a bookshelf. Three hundred issues in trade. Oh yeah, I want them all. I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, the cover to Hellboy as a one is an almost prototypical Vertigo cover, even though Vertigo doesn't exist yet. It's murky and hard to figure out exactly what's going on. And it comes as no surprise that it's one of Dave McKean's collage jobs. As usual with McKean, I kind of like it without actually being sure why I like it. Yeah, because there's nothing going on on it, but there's a lot of things going on It's like that with all of McKean's covers. Mm. I look at them and I like them, and then I go, why do I like this? Because this is so far removed from what I normally like from my comic book art. Yeah. And yet there's just something about the guy's work that speaks to me. Mm. And I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah, if you were to... If I were to pick my ten favourite comic book artists, they would not be Dave McKean. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever, yeah, whenever you see Dave Yeah, whenever McKean. I see a Dave McKean piece of work, I'm like, that's bloody good, and I don't know why. Mm. Um, John's hers upswept in such a way that he could be a werewolf, or wolverine, or the daredevil adversary, the owl. That's what he looks like. <laughs> he looks like the owl. Yeah. Uh, and there's a picture of some old dude and some bugs. And it's striking. Well, the bugs play a part in this. Yeah, story. they do. It's striking without me actually knowing why it's striking. Yeah. I'm not an art critic, mm. so just take my word for it that it's good. <laughs> well, the artist must have been feeling rather dark. Yeah, just use words like duality and juxtaposition yeah. and everything's good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Hunger was written by Jamie Delano with art by John Ridgway, coloured by Laverne Kinsioska. Hey, well done. Yeah. I couldn't have pronounced that. She did Animal Man, didn't she? The Jeff Lemire Animal Man's. Did she? I think What, so. the recent one? Yeah. Right, okay. Uh, lettered by Annie Halfacree and edited by Karen Berger. Oh, I'll pause for a moment to pass. Th- I wonder if the cancellation of Hellblazer was Karen Berger's last straw. It might have been, no. Because she's slowly seen Vertigo being whittled away. And Vertigo was Karen Berger's baby, yeah. wasn't it? And she sh- she's slowly seeing the creator's rights part of Vertigo being whittled away. Mm-hmm. And she's watched all of her best creators go. Ennis left Vertigo. Yeah. And went to Dynamite. Jamie, not Jamie Delano, Brian K. Vaughan's left Vertigo and gone over to Image. Mm-hmm. And Neil Gaiman left Vertigo. And you've got this thing, I wonder if this was the final straw that broke the camel the cancellation of Hellblazer and she's like right, I've, I've, I've had enough of this it now. could have been because Hellblazer on its own was as much as her baby as Vertigo mm. was yeah so I wonder if it was I, get, I mean I don't think we'll ever know certainly no. not in the near future it makes sense yeah uh, obviously we're covering Hellblazer so we'll try and keep it as family friendly as normal but occasionally there may be the odd reference that you may want to explain to your children we won't <laughs> be swearing to to your yeah. children. we won't be swearing or anything like that Henry Wambach opened a parcel earlier that day and is now hungry. He eats burgers from a vendor before heading to a restaurant. He eats all the menu, and all he feels is buzzing in his head and an uncontrollable hunger that increases the more he eats. He starts to panic in the restaurant and begins to turn thin as he eats. He tries to eat a woman before dying of skin and bones. 
John Constantine returns to England and to his apartment in London where he is greeted by his landlady who tells John about his drugged up friend Gary Lester who stayed and asked her to deliver a parcel to the US for him before leaving and says that she's been having insect problems recently. John sits down in his apartment where he finds a syringe filled with liquid and dead insects. He investigates the rest of his apartment to find more bugs all over the place and hears a noise in the bathroom. He opens the door to see Gary Lester panicking in the bath, covered in insects. John closes the door and rushes down to the corner shop, leaving Gary behind. There he calls Chaz and tells him to come over with medicine and buys 12 cans of insect repellents. He sprays Gary in the apartment and Chaz comes round. Gary says something about a Minimoth, and so John hypnotises Gary, so he tells him what Minimoth is. Nemoth! What? That's Minimoth? Oh, right. Why, what, what? The actual spelling of it, it's Nemoth. Is it? Yeah. The spelling is MN. The M is silent. It's like mnemonic. Alright, okay. So it's Nemoth. Gary was in Arabia when he found a foreign man on the floor, possessed, similar to what they saw in Newcastle. This is important. He took the man <laughs> off. I love it when we do that. We flag up, this is important. <laughs> yeah. Let's stand there with a sign. Pay attention. <laughs> and tied the man down to perform a ritual to rid the demon and contain it in a jar. The demon pleaded to him to let Gary free and keeps calling to him. Gary went crazy and sent the jar to John in the US. John gets Gary to draw the pattern on the man's head before tying him up and leaving him with Chaz. John checks in with an anthropologist he knows and shows him the drawing. He recognises the symbols from southern Sudan and says they belong to the only tribe who still performs sacrificial magic. He then phones Papa Midnight, Haitian heavyweight in America, who tells John about Henry Wambach. He heads to a small tribe in Sudan where he asks about the drawing. He is sent to a lone tent on the hill where he finds an old man who claims to have been expecting him. The old man says he once dreamed of John and asks, is the hunger demon free again? He shows John what Mimoth is <laughs> and what it's capable of before heading to London to pick up Gary and then back to New York. John takes Gary to see Midnight and on the way there he gets tired of his whining and yells at him. They walk through a door behind Midnight's club and bump into a huge man, but John takes him down with a slap and a stern word as the man is a zombie labour. They head up to Midnight's penthouse and John convinces Midnight to help him contain the demon and leaves Gary with him. He visits the house of an old girlfriend of his but finds that she died. As he leaves, he's visited by her ghost. Later, John walks past another man, eating himself to death and spots a fly leave his body. He follows it and ends up in a church. He enters it to find me moth and runs away back to midnight very good synopsis because this was quite a, a dense issue it was wasn't it was it double sized or it slightly pages, more yeah. than double sized 40 pages very good very good very good I was impressed by that uh, since this story was written because I did look up Nemoth mm-hmm. on the interwebs to see if it was because sometimes a lot of these stories are based in slight factual reality aren't they yeah. and they spin off in their own fictional direction um I couldn't find any reference to Nemoth from around or before the story was written. Uh-huh. But after this, they have discovered a rare brand of moth and named it Nemoth. Okay. So I don't know if I ever discovered the moth was a fan of Hellblazer, <laughs> which would explain a great many things, or if it's just coincidence. Yeah. Could just be coincidence. Uh, the, first, the inside first page of this issue um, uses the now familiar technique of having an article from a magazine or newspaper 
in this case called Faces on the Street by Satchmo Hawkins, uh, in which the article brings any new readers up to speed on who John Constantine may be. Mm-hmm. Because the issue itself pays no lip service to that at all. Yeah. You're essentially thrown into the deep end if you don't know who Constantine is, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Which I like. There's two kinds of pilot episodes for TV shows. Mm-hmm. There's one where it's just another episode, and you as the viewer just catch up as we go along. Yeah. Like the original Star Trek was one of them. It was just another mission. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the first time they'd met or anything like that. And then there's the they all meet for the first time and go forward from there. Yeah. This is very much the former. Mm-hmm. Constantine is who he is, he's well established, he's well known throughout the world, and as the reader, you pe- you're playing catch-up throughout the entire issue. The advantage of this is by having this first page here, you're not wading through loads of bad exposition in the story itself. Yeah. You're brought up to speed roughly with an idea of who Constantine is. Well, that could be, because if you're picking this up as it's coming out, odds are you've read him in Swamp Thing. But the possibility as well, so you'll pick up a new number one having not read Swamp Thing. So it works both ways. Yeah. So this works both ways. If you've read him and know he is fine, if not, you catch up as you go along. Yeah. I prefer this to loads of tedious exposition. Because it works in Animal Man. Because it works in Animal Man, yeah. Um, The newspaper write-up refers to Mucus Membrane, which is John's late 70s punk band, and Bethlehem Slouch, another proto-punk band. This is a reference to the line, and what rough beast, it's our come round at last. Slouch is towards Bethlehem to be born from the second coming by William Butler Yeats. This poem has so many pop culture and literary references taken from it, it'd take forever to name them all, so I'm not going to (laughs) bother. But you've probably seen a television show or read a comic book. Peter David's very fond of this poem. Yeah. Because he's used it quite a lot. Why, which one is it? Uh, The What Savage Beast one. Is it that one? I have no idea. And there was an episode of Angel called Slouch Bethlehem and all that stuff. You know, there was an issue of Delano's run where it had a backup and it was a music video of a mucus membrane song with lyrics. Was it? Yeah. Did it have music? So you it, could actually it didn't have it. music, oh, but right. it had panels of the music video and the lyrics to go with right. it. So. The first couple of pages are quite gross. Pages one through three. The guy eating until he starves to death is the inverse of Mr. Creosote from Monty Python's Meaning of Life, who eats so much he explodes. You ever seen that one? That's quite funny. There's a lovely line in the uh, the write-up as well, in the first page, the fake article. My companion's machismo wilts like a hard on to circumcision. Which I thought was very funny. <laughs> uh, artist John Ridgway was a staple at Marvel UK when I was growing up. Yeah, He was um, primarily the artist on a number of Doctor Who strips if I recall correctly, because he can do quite good likenesses. But I remember he did a number of covers to Spider-Man and other weekly UK books, as well as drawing UK-only strips for Battlestar Galactica and the Hulk annuals. You know the Hulk annuals that had strips in that weren't American reprints? Yeah. And they were based on the TV show, so Banner looked like Bill Bixby. Mm. He drew them, because he was very good at actors' licences. You go upstairs and look at the annuals for Hulk annual 1980 and the Battlestar Galactica one. That's, That's John Ridgway artwork. Yeah. You see, I really don't like John Ridgway. Do you know? I think he... You know. I'll, I'll give you one panel. John's hair on page five. No, he's got 80s hair. Yeah, but that one panel, his hair is completely different to the panel on the top page. Well, it's the wind got blowing it around. And, but I really don't like John Ridgway. I think he's the, the art in this is really poor. 
do you think? Well, I think a lot of earlier Hellblazer really wasn't the best to look at, right. in my opinion. Okay. Ridgeway was just one of the worst of the artists. See, I quite liked the art in this. I really did. I liked its murkiness, yeah. which suits a Vertigo book. I don't yeah. know if I'd like John Ridgeway drawing superheroes on a regular basis. Although he did a good job with the Marvel UK covers, so, mm. you know, maybe he's just multifaceted. Yeah. He could be. Um... I didn't. The thing I didn't like. There's a the text piece at the beginning says that John's accent is South London with a tinge of Scouse, but Delano writes him as a pure Cockney. Yeah, all the way through the book, doesn't he? Personally, I hear John Lennon's voice when I read Constantine's dialogue. <laughs> I, I always read the American <coughs> until I found out one time he. Was yeah, we, we talked about this on the Christmas show. Yeah. You read him as an American and I'm, I was like, how could you read Constantine as an American? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know he, how he was Scouts. Did you know? <laughs> but uh, I think Delano really over-eggs the pudding with regards to Constantine's dialogue in this one, almost as much as Chris Claremont used to do with Rogue. It positively screams, I've got a Cockney accent! Yeah. And I, I've never read Constantine as Cockney, because I've always read him as being a Scouser. Mm. I don't know where I read that, but I seem to have always known that he was a Scouser. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Before I even was reading the comic book. So I've always read him with that kind of lilting Scouse accent. Mm. Now, if he's lived in London for a while, he may have picked up a bit of London, a bit of South London. But the Scouse accent, I believe, is up there with the Irish accent as one of the hardest accents to actually lose. Yeah, so it would be like a Scouse accent with a tinge of London. Well, that's that's where I always hear John Lennon. Yeah. Because Lennon's Lennon's accent isn't that hard Scouse. Hey, la! Is it? <laughs> yeah. John Lennon's accent is, uh, is, is a very softer Scouse accent. Yeah. And that's what I hear from Constantine, especially as being as, as well-travelled as he is. Um, there's a nice noir-tinged voiceover to the story proving that Dark Knight's influence wasn't just over mainstream comics mm. in fact I enjoyed the internal monologues a lot more than the actual dialogue yeah the internal monologue stuff in the captions is really good like um, do you want me to do my Scouse accent again? Oh, go on then. Uh, give it a go hey, um, the traffic is barely moving and the back of the taxi still smells vaguely like last night's vomit I decide to walk the rest of the way. The thin Sunday afternoon's drizzle greases the tired streets, ignoring the queasiness which quakes my stomach like an uneasy swamp. I turn up my collar against the toothless gnawing of the early November wind and merge into the welcome anonymity of the city. That is... I like that. It's very scene-setting, it's very noir, it's very detective noir. Mm. But when you actually get to the dialogue... Bloody airline food! Bloody rain! Bloody England! (laughs) <laughs> sorry <coughs> oh, and that made me throat yeah. dialogue and <clears throat> monologue don't match yeah, the dialogue is very cliched yeah <clears throat> I'm doing it like that really did it at the back of my throat so I don't think I'll be doing that anymore this, this week um, I did like the line about his favourite chur when he gets into his apartment a flat because we're in England yeah not remembering his shape because mm. that's great that because when you have got a chair that you sit on all the time it moulds to you yeah and he's been away so long I'm not sure what I think about a John Constantine in a three piece suit especially a double breasted one he always wears his suit a double breasted one 
I'm not sure about that. He always has it unbuttoned, really. Yeah, see, he's always worn a suit under his coat. A double-breasted suit, to me, is the 70s. Yeah. After the 70s, single-breasted suits came back in. I think they came back a little bit double-breasted. Yeah. But single-breasted... I think single-breasted suits look much better. Yeah. Than double-breasted. So I don't see John Constantine wearing a double-breasted suit. But then again, I'm not a fashion no. correspondent, am I? To me, it so. just looked weird that... He wore it all buttoned up like that. Yeah, it, it does. In in recent issues, it's just a shirt and a tie. It doesn't bother with it. doesn't bother with the jacket. Yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, he goes into his room and it's crawling with bugs. Mm. Why did it have to be bugs? It's like that scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's bugs everywhere. Oh, there was um, that horror movie Stephen King yeah. made with a bugs bit. Oh, what was it called? Creep Show. Was it Creep Show? Yeah, with all the shots. George Romero. Yeah. And the one with all the bugs. Because he goes in the next page and his mate's in the bath covered in spiders and moths and yeah. locusts and other creepy crawlies. And then, oh, it just makes your skin crawl, mm. doesn't it? Which was a bit. It makes his skin crawl. Oh, uh, page nine. John gets a taxi cab. No, he doesn't get a taxi cab. That's in another issue. Yeah. I'm mixing my issues up. He goes into the corner shop. And um, he slams open the door on two teenagers, two skinheads, and one of them actually says, "When when one of us, oh, you watch it," and the other one says, "Watch it." That's Constantine. So he's already got a reputation. Yeah. So from that one little exchange, you get that Constantine is feared and respected. Yeah. By everybody, even these smart-mouthed skinhead teenagers are scared of Constantine. Mm. so no expositionary dialogue is needed that one little bit tells you everything you need to know about it yeah which I, I really did I really did think was good and um, they really are very casually racist towards the guy who's running the corner shop aren't they well that was in it quite a lot around this time it was the earlier Hellblazer is full of like racism and homophobia yeah because Hellblazer was a way of the writers to write about the times and their opinions on it. Yes, and when it's done like this, and it's not banging you over the head with it, I quite liked it. When it when the casual racism is done casually. Yes, and John's attitude towards it is this sucks. Yeah. There's there's I mean I'll get to it when we cover a later issue, but there's a bit in Neil Gaiman's issue that we're going to cover in a bit mm. where it just felt so right on. That yeah. I was like, I really am glad Neil Gaiman grew up as a writer. Yeah. Instead of just being so, right, oh, let's <laughs> let's protest everything. <laughs> so, um, you know. But I like that. I did like that. And I did like that they were scared of Constantine. Mm. So for all the big mouth at what they're saying to the guy. And some of this is quite derogatory. Yeah. I was quite surprised they got away with some of this. Even in 87. Was it 87? Yeah. 93? Well, maybe that was why it was branded as a mature title. Not because of the <coughs> horror, just the... Yeah, racism. because of the, the, the just blatant racism of the two skinheads. It's possible, mm. I suppose. Um, page 19, after trying to evacuate his flat using the bug spray, it doesn't go too well, John quickly makes his way to the Sudan, where he's referred to as the Laughing Magician. There's also been a ton of references to Newcastle, his girlfriend Emma in the United States, and past misadventures, which again is Delano's very subtle way of world building and establishing John as already being an established character and in some cases feared yeah. in his respected field, which very well done. 
Yeah. I would have. I didn't have fond memories of Jamie Delano's run. No. I often thought it was quite overwritten and overblown and oft times pretentious. Well, you and Mum always said that. Yeah. When I read but, Delano's run all the way through, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, but this this was good. This. Yeah. I really did enjoy this. Um. The first time I read this, that was a bit taken out of the story because of him getting from London to Sudan to London to New York. Yeah. Until, um, I always had a problem that up until I read Books of Magic, whereas in issue two, it's the John Constantine issue. Hmm. And he mentions, I can't remember what it is, but Tim says, how are we going to get on this plane? I don't have a passport. And John just says, well, I don't use this magic trick where I just end up on the plane. Right. Because he does seem like a globe-trotting archaeologist here, doesn't he? Yeah, he just uses magic to <coughs> go somewhere. Right. He doesn't. So he can't use his magic to just get him there. No. But he, he can get on the plane. Get, yeah. Right. What does he do if there's no seat? Well, I think we mentioned that as well. Right. So he does allow for that. Fair enough. Uh, page twenty-five. I don't have anything for the intervening pages. Page 25 again, Papa Midnight's past relationship with John is referenced, and the fact that he took Midnight for 50 grand last year. I didn't know this was Papa Midnight's first appearance. Yeah. I could have sworn Papa Midnight was a 50s black exploitation villain. <laughs> you know, like, he's the kind of person Luke Cage would have thought if, yeah. you know, he was in a Marvel comic. But no, this is his first time he's appeared, isn't he? Mm. So he was created well, for Hellblazer. was in Ennis's stuff. Right. Yeah, I remember from Ennis's stuff. Yeah. Right, so maybe that's it. I remember him from Ennis and just assumed he'd always been there. Mm. I didn't know Jamie Delano created him. Um, he had his own miniseries as well. Yeah, I do prefer it when we just dropped into the world. Papa Midnight did remind me very much of the characters in the Bond movie Live and Let Die. Yeah. Didn't he? Two names is for tombstones, baby. Which amused me. No end. I thought that was quite funny. Um, on page 35, John makes his way back to New York back to the apartment where the original package was sent to. So if he hadn't left, he'd have got the package before he came home. Yeah. So, But if he's using magic, this isn't costing him anything, so that's great. And uh, he meets the ghost of Emma on page 35, which is a good introduction to John's lifestyle and a portent of things to come regarding John's relationship with the opposite sex, mm. that they either end up leaving him or dead, which was quite unfortunate. Um, I like this first issue a lot. I really did. It was yeah. a rather satisfying introduction to Constantine and his world. Uh, Delano throws the reader in at the deep end, but he successfully manages to create a fully developed character in John Constantine, as well as fleshing out his backstory without lots of needless exposition and an origin story. This is, in many ways, as I said in the introduction, an almost textbook example of Vertigo. Constantine, whilst ostensibly the good guy has got a lot of moral ambiguity to him and it seems that the people he gets close to have a habit of not being around very long and his friends and his enemies seem interchangeable. The colours are murky, as was the norm for a lot of early Vertigo books, but the art itself is quite good with the characters all being well defined. Where the first issue falls down for me is that we don't get a complete story and the dialogue, whilst the internal monologues are all fine and quite evocative and lyrical, the actual dialogue, particularly John's, is almost stereotypically safe, Landon, with John even calling somebody Meow San during the story. I was waiting for him to say, oh, the apples and pears, me old China. <laughs> um, but secondly, and this is just a personal thing, I prefer first issues to tell a complete story as well as introducing him to the characters as continued first issues always make me feel like they're just out to take my money 
Yeah. And the, you've bought issue one, buy issue two. Um, a first issue should have all the details I need to decide whether I want to keep on buying. But ultimately, this was more interesting and entertaining. And it was a decent look at where it all began. Mm. I don't know if we'd pick this as the best of Hellblazer. No. But you have to start so that you can go on. Yeah. We say all that, to quote Derek Ferguson, to say this. Mm-hmm. So it was good, that. What did you think of the first issue? Um, as a first issue, I think it was pretty fine, but the first issues I read was Ennis' stuff. Mm. So then when I went back to read these, I was pretty let down, really. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That, I think... Maybe you just need to leave it a bit, because I've not read these for ages since I was in my early 20s. Yeah. And reading that Jamie Delano issue here, and the one we're going to do next, I really did enjoy them. Yeah. A lot more than I thought I was when you originally said we, we should we should do writers. We should pick the, the writers that are most associated with Constantine, and we should cover a couple of issues of each one of them. Yeah. And not just memorable issues. Mm. Let's try and give a wide spectrum of the different kinds of writers that have covered the book. And when you said we'll do a couple of Jamie Delano, I was like, oh, God. Mm. But no, I really did enjoy it. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. It was very, very good. One of the things that I thought let it down for me was he wasn't fighting ghosts or anything horrific. It was bugs. Yeah. And there is a ghost in it. Yeah, but it's mostly bugs. It's his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. (laughs) It was hard. I thoroughly enjoyed it, to be Mm. honest with you. I really did. What was next on the docket, young Michael? Next up was issue 11. Ooh, which was a pivotal it issue. It was very pivotal. In Hellblazer mythology. Um, the cover again is Dave McKean, isn't it? Yeah. It's John, again with Owl Her from Daredevil Comics, yeah. and a Broughton doll. It says Newcastle on it. And it says Newcastle on it, and you're like, what? Hmm. And again, it's Dave McKean, and again, it's like, what? why do I like this? I know. It's, it's a Broughton doll and a face. And I don't even know who's saying symbolic broken doll. Yeah, symbolic broken doll. It's again, I like it. You may not. I can yeah. understand why people would not like this. Mm-hmm. But I do. So Newcastle, A Taste of Things to Come, was written by Delano with art by Richard Pierce Rayner and Mark Buckingham. Lettered by Todd Clean, coloured by Laverne Kinzierski and edited by Art Young and Karen Berger. This issue has been uh, led up to for the past 11 issues since the start of Hellblazer. So, if you were reading it, you'd been going, what's going on happened at Newcastle? Yeah, they were building up, New- they built Newcastle up quite a lot. They did, yeah. they did more with this as well, didn't they? In Delano's yeah. run. John is at the remnants of the Casanova Club in Newcastle. He walks through the scrapyard that sits in front of it and is taken back. A long time ago, John had a team that consisted of Frank, Anne-Marie, Richard Simpson, Gary Lester, Benjamin and John. They headed to the club where Mucus Membrane made its debut gig, but was then abandoned. The club belonged to someone John knew, Alex Logue, who worked around the occult. When reports came in about disturbances and phenomena on Newcastle, the group decided to investigate. The club was locked, so John smashed through the empty club. Anne-Marie sensed that something awful had happened there and Ben heard noises coming from behind the basement door. The group head down and find a pile of dead bodies ripped open and heard a noise coming from upstairs, but the panic from the bodies downstairs made them rush up anyway. Once they came out of the stairs, they saw Logue's daughter, Astra, dancing to a recording of the people dying. John asked her what had happened and she told him that an awful thing had killed them, obviously quite disturbed. 
John hypnotized her and she told him about her dad and his friends abusing her. She said she didn't want to be with them over and over, but nobody listened. So she thought of the worst thing anybody could ever think of and created an awful thing that killed them all. John sent her to sleep and promised that when she woke up, an awful thing would be gone. John decided that the best way to fight an awful thing is to summon an even stronger demon, which should be easy as long as Astra stayed asleep to keep an awful thing away. As John went to get his kit from the van, he heard Ben downstairs and found him being attacked by an awful thing. The group rescued him and decided to summon the demon. After the group had prepared, they carried out a summoning, but nothing happened. John tried again, but still, nothing happened. Elsewhere, Anne-Marie saw John naked and standing above her as she kissed him until he... sprayed... gunk... all <laughs> over her. And then screamed as she jumped out of a window. Astrid then headed down to John in the group, saying he called to her. She called an awful thing, and it came out of the floor. She stepped closer to it before she pulled its head off, and John realises the demon he summoned was in her, and then demanded that it leave. It did so, and demanded to take Astra as its fee for showing up, even though John had made a mistake during the summoning. John refused, and the demon gave an alternative. John and Astra. John led Astra into the demon's mouth and into the gates of hell, whilst the group started pouring gasoline everywhere. He then threw an explosive into the mouth and ran out, holding Astra's hand. When he came out, he saw that the hand he was holding had been cut off from Astra's body by the demon's jaws, but before he could turn back, the club had already been set on fire. John stands up in the junkyard, surrounded by the ghosts of his old group, and lit a cigarette in the rain. He knew the demon's name now, Nurgle, and knew that when he found out how, this would be where he killed it. A lot of backstory in this one. There is. I, I did like a bit about no full thing sounds like awful thing. Yeah. Which I thought was quite cool. Um, before we get into the story, there's a Johnny DC page in this book, which I thought was worth pointing out. Uh, some of the issues that were coming out around here, Legion of Superheroes 62, Action Comics Weekly 616, um, Deadshot 1, Green Arrow 10, Star Trek 56, Batman 425, and Superman 23. The Johnny DC article is actually quite interesting. Superboy, the TV series, should be going into production, it says here, so no one's being cast at this point, and Superman's getting a new animated cartoon series, which would happen. Arnold Schwarzenegger is signed to portray Sergeant Rock, which wouldn't happen. And the return of Swamp Thing has started shooting on location. Dick Duroc returns as Swamp Thing, who was the th- the Hulk, the other Hulk in the first, yeah, which was an episode of the Hulk TV show. Heather Locklear joins the cast, and the movie will try and retain the tone of the current Swamp Thing series. <laughs> that didn't happen either, did it? Because it was, it was comedy a campy it, movie, yeah. yeah. Quite, quite, uh, quite disappointing in many respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman is tooted as being just about to start, mm-hmm. so Vertigo's just around the corner in yeah. many ways. Even though it's another couple of years from actually happening. That um, reading the what's out this month's in Vertigo's because and and I know a lot about Vertigo around a certain era, like say ninety to ninety five. Mm-hmm. When when I've got loads of them. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like reading them just to see, oh right, so that issue of uh, Sandman was out there. Do you ever go, so Dad'll have been eighteen when he was buying this. <laughs> yeah. Dad'll have been the same age as me when he bought that. Yeah. Um page one. I can also recognise the same adverts in them. Yeah, the adverts are dissimilar all the way through, aren't they? Um Why Iman <laughs> And I was like, really? <laughs> Why, Iron Man? <laughs> hey, they have Spuggy Man. <laughs> Anton Deckman. 
Um, I did wonder how American readers took to this. Mm. Because what did they think of slang when they don't know the accent? It was written by a British man for British people. I know, but it's an American comic book. Yeah. So there are surely going to be American readers who go, what the hell does YI Mon need? (laughs) And what can I for you? (laughs) YI man, what can I do for you? And you're like, what? Yeah. I can't, I, I, you know. I mean... Google Pearl Nexus. <laughs> we don't understand the Geordie accent. And we live here. Yeah. So... <laughs> so I, I, I was... I, I did wonder what American read. If every American reader's read Hellblazer and are listening yeah. to the show, can you let us know what you thought of this? Still is what's left of it since the bombing, man. Mm. Maybe it's why you moved to America so frequently, just so they could understand... What <laughs> so they could understand the yeah. dialogue. <laughs> Because, you know, like I said, Geordie's hard to understand if you're from England, let yeah. alone if you're from anywhere else in the world. Um, two pages in, and we already get a hint at the yes. end of the issue, with the arm that falls off the doll and into the puddle represents Astra's arm. Mm. It's good, that. Mm. Good bit of foreshadowing. I like that. Um, page two as well. I, I don't. I don't know how to say this, really, without just saying it but John's friends really do strike me as the kind of people that I would despise yeah don't they yes just you know counterculture clone and small time conjurer just looking at what they're wearing as well you're kind of like no yeah no I don't think so um the art I think in this issue looks a lot better than Ridgeway but it can't decide whether it wants to be wonky or stiff or both. There's a lot of it that's stiff. There's a lot of it that's slightly wonky, but then some of it that's really good. Well, Richard Piers Rayner and Mark Buckingham did the art. Mm. Doesn't Mark Buckingham pencil his own stuff normally? And he starts as an inker. Did he? Mm. Oh, okay. But he does do his own art now, doesn't he? Because he he's doing it in Fables, isn't he? Yeah. He mostly did uh, Bacalo's inking. Right. Because we've met him. We have. At Thought Bubble. Mm-hmm. No, at Bix. Yeah. And he was very he, nice. He drew death. He did. He drew a death for me, which, mm-hmm. I, thought was, which I gave to your mum. Yeah. See, great. that Astro looks very stiff. Yeah, I will see some of it must be photo-referenced, I think. I think that, that looks a bit photo-referenced to me, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, there's a rather unsubtle indication that Astra's been abused by her father, Alex Logue, and thus instantly we want John to kick his ass. Alas, we never get that payoff, do we? You died before the issue started. Yeah, so that's a shame, unfortunately. Uh, Page 14, because there's not a lot in between the panels. Michael's give you a pretty good synopsis of the story. John's exceptionally cocky in this story, isn't he? Mm. In a way that you could only be when you're in your early 20s, when you still feel immortal and overly confident, yet you haven't got maturity or experience on your side to stay your hand. The fact that he's the leader of a small gang of rogues and misfits makes him feel cock of the walk, when he is in fact a small fish in an ocean. He uses all the right words and all the right costumes, but he's got no idea what he's doing Mm. at this point in the character's development, which ultimately leads to the downfall at the end of the issue. Yeah. It follows on to page 15 where we see the devotion John's friends have towards him. Often unwarranted, in my opinion. And as hinted at in issue one, this never ends well. In the dialogue, Anne-Marie is described as 40 and fat. Yet the art depicts her as neither. Mm. She doesn't look 40. She doesn't look fat. 
particularly. Yeah. So I don't know whether that was a miscommunication between the artist and the writer. She doesn't look much older than John, if any, if she does look older than him. Yeah. Which I don't think she does. Um, there's a quote from Shakespeare. So once again, we have a bad guy who quotes the bird. Get thee to a nunnery from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. Uh, the scene in question is played so that Ophelia is being told by Hamlet to get away so she breeds no sinners like him but it also works as a double entendre nunnery being Elizabethan slang for brothel one suspects the demon here is using it ironically given that he seduces Anne-Marie pretending to be John yeah so but the shooting of um, stuff (laughs) all over her because where is that coming from? because she's Um, got her hands on his back hasn't she? yeah and it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, that did make things that make you go, mm. <laughs> Yeah. When reading it, yes. Uh, page 21. John's arrogance, arrogance and smugness that he displayed earlier in, in the earlier part of the tale come back to bite him, where it's revealed that the demon is here purely because of John's ineptitude. Mm. It states that hell is full of egotists like him, and in fact, they are the favourite sports of the hell beasts. There's also another literary quote, Abandon Hope, All You Enter Here. It's from Dante's Inferno. And the inscription above the gateway to hell. So apparently, that's literally hmm. the inscription above the gateway to hell, if this demon is to be believed. Yeah. But do we believe demons from hell, as a rule? Probably not. No. Probably best not to. Um this issue I think on its own shows who John is yeah this this event is like the death of Uncle Ben or Jonathan Kent yeah it defines John who he is and to me John is a character who is cocky and he's defined by his mistakes but I think similar to say Spider-Man he gets too cocky and forgets to learn from his mistakes yeah, that's a very good point, that. Because I think a lot of Hellblazer stories end with John being too cocky and then falling on his ass. Yes, but then sometimes his cockiness and arrogance win the day. Pay off, but then there's... I think the balance of stories where he loses to stories where he wins... Mm, does a, does a heavy balance. ratio yeah. in, in losing. That's actually a very good point. I'd never considered that. Mm. That, yeah, it's it's failures that have made him who he is. Yeah. Just like, yeah, like you say, Uncle Ben's death is the failure that made Peter Parker who he is. Because it, it still haunts him from the issues before and afterwards. Yeah, because Newcastle was mentioned pretty much in every issue leading up to this. Yeah. And although in this issue we find the backstory and find out what happened at Newcastle, this will ultimately inform pretty much the rest of Delano's run. Yeah. And it's his final story arc, isn't it? Where no. he finally puts this to rest, or does he do it before that? The, his final story arc was his twin. Right. Where he kills his twin. So he puts it to rest just before that. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, I wonder if they keep this in uh, the new 52 in Constantine. If he went to Newcastle and Ravenscroft. Uh, you've not read Constantine 1 yet, you don't know that he's still British in the new 52. <laughs> he is. Are you sure? From Justice League Dark. Are you sure yeah. they're not using the film as the template and Keanu Reeves is now Constantine? No, there's a panel in issue one where he falls in London and you know it's London because the London Eye's in it and the Houses of Parliament's in it. Oh, right. So. Okay. There's Big Ben outside his window. Yes. 
Because whenever you go to London, if you look out of a window, that's what you see. Oh, yeah. You can't avoid it. It's like a Bond movie. Yeah, it moves around with you. (laughs) It's like the sun. (laughs) Big Ben walks around with you, chiming at you. Um, Over time, Hell took every one of John's friends from Newcastle. Although John believes he will find a way to beat the demon, in which he learns he is finally named Nurgle. This was actually a much better issue than the first one, with a clear narrative from start to finish and a good filling in of the backstory for the character that was hinted at in issue one. For obvious reasons, there needs to be a build-up to this, and so leaving this crucial part of John's past vague until now gives the reader a chance to get to know John before revealing his murky backstory. It's quite brave to have a lead character in your drama be unlikable and a bit of an arrogant prick as the older John does have experience and knowledge on his side but he's still a healthy mix of these characteristics he's essentially a more grounded version of Doctor Strange yeah master of the mystic arts Mm. except John doesn't really deal with mystic arts he deals with other kinds of things Uh, it was good that one what made you pick that one? It it was important to John it's an important story in the overall arcing mythology. Yeah. I thought the first criteria was different writers. Different writers. Yeah. And my second criteria was important events. Right. The character. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Jobs are good. Well, so with that in mind, then. Yes. What did you go for next? Well, next, this fits into the criteria of different writers. Right. So I went for issue twenty-seven. And what was special about issue 27, Michael? It was a one-off. It was a one-shot. Yes. I'm surprised you didn't pick issue 25 and 26, to be honest with you. Which ones are they? Grant Morrison. We've already covered them. Have we? Yep. When did we do that? In our Hellblazer episode of our Vertigo season. Do you know, I do not remember doing that. We covered the two issues by Morrison, and the two issues by Ennis were... um, the use dead people to test weapons. Oh, yes! Yes, I do remember that one. Yeah. Yeah, yes. I remember those stories. Mm-hmm. Yes, very good. Very good indeed. Uh, the cover again is by Dave McKean, because there was a time where Neil Gaiman didn't do anything without Dave McKean. Yeah. Wasn't there? And uh, it's got a smurf on the cover, squashed <laughs> into a heart at the centre, and a grotesque body above the logo. It's Dave McKean, so I have to assume you either like it at this point or you don't. This one's quite minimalist, isn't it? I quite like this one. Uh, again, yeah, I like it. I don't know why, mm. but I do. Yes. Hold Me was written by Neil Gaiman with art by Dave McKean. Lettered by Todd Clean, coloured by McKean and Danny Vozzo, and edited by Art Young and Karen Verger. Karen Verger. Karen Verger. 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 Oh, dear me. It was very cold one spring, and three homeless people huddled for shelter. One of them walked away from the other two and hid in the street. But it was so cold. John calls a taxi, but gets out after he gets sick of the driver's racism. He heads to a party set up by Raymond's friends and bumps into a homeless Neil Gaiman who asks for a cigarette. <laughs> he makes it to the party where he's in- introduced to another of Ray's friends, Anthea, in an apartment complex. A young girl tells her mum that there's a smelly man in her room, but her mum doesn't believe her until she turns around and sees the smelly man begging her to hold him. The woman panics and freezes to death as the man touches her. John and Anthea talk until she asks him to take her home. John notices a smell, and Anthea tells him that some time ago the police had found two homeless people dead in an abandoned apartment. As they enter her apartment, someone watches. 
She makes him a drink, and as she sits down, John asks her the name of her flatmate. She says Sarah, and John remembers Ray talking about an Anthea and Sarah. He then realises that she's a lesbian. She tells him that she and Sarah wanted a baby and she wanted to bear it, and so decided to have John be the biological father as Ray always spoke highly of him, they were very paranoid about AIDS, and he was clean, and they wanted a blonde baby. John gets annoyed at this and leaves, where he bumps into the young girl. She tells him about the man and her mum, and leaves John to her apartment. John finds her mum frozen and dead on the floor. He takes the girl to Anthea and tells her to phone the police and an ambulance in half an hour. He breaks into an apartment where the two homeless people died and the man appears. John demands that he tell him his name and he says it's Jacko and that he's cold. He begs John to hold him and so John does. As he does so, Jacko disappears, happy that he's now warm. John stumbles down the corridor and enters Anthea's apartment. Very good indeed. You put a lot into these synopsises this time. I'm very impressed. Do I usually not? No, it's not that you don't normally do. It's just this one you seem to have particularly put yeah. a lot of effort into the synopsis. So it's funny that you said he bumps into almost Neil Gaiman. I thought he bumped into almost Tim Burton. Yeah, <laughs> but either works. Yeah. Uh, page one through four feels very much like a pre-credit sequence of a TV show, like Doctor Who, or, or more like The Equaliser, mm. to be honest with you, uh, with its grimy inner city feel. You feel like after these opening four pages it should go into <laughs> and Edward Woodward should come along and say, I do not forgive! Um, McKean's sequential art is very good. To an extent. Yeah, it's still scratchy, like his collage covers. And it's incredibly stylized, mm. but I felt that it worked quite well for this story. The shots yeah. of London are particularly effective, although they could be photo reference or doctored pictures, couldn't they? Mm. I don't know that he's actually drawn them. That thing, he, he can be very stylized, but then sometimes it's so, so scratchy it looks realistic. Yeah. But I think this is like one of the best examples of his linear storytelling. How much of this has he done? He did violent cases with Neil Gaiman. Yeah, and he did um, Arkham Asylum with Grant Morrison. Oh yeah, he did. He did Arkham Asylum. Yeah, it was crap Arkham Asylum, wasn't it? Yes, I went in wanting to read it for Morrison. Came out liking Dave McKean's art, even though both the art and the story was pants. That's one of the top ten best Batman stories ever told. So is Watchmen. That's well, not one of the top ten best Batman yeah. stories. Arkham Asylum's crap, isn't it? It God, was. I'm glad you think Arkham Asylum's crap. Yeah. Anyway, but we're not doing an Arkham Asylum show. <laughs> uh, page five, after the pre-credit sequence, John's hailing a taxi. Uh, at the top of the page, the homeless person just vanishing hmm. is a metaphor for the homeless generally, unseen by a society that's forgotten them or simply doesn't care. What's, what's John doing in that panel where he's calling the taxi? He's facing the fence, but turning around to the road. Is he, like, taking a leak on the fence? I was just going to say, was he taking a through the fence? Yeah. That's entirely possible. Because it does... You, you, you are... If you're hailing a taxi, you're normally facing the road, aren't you? Yeah. You don't normally have your back to the road and turn around at an, un, an unusual <laughs> angle to, as if to say, Oh, you taxi, I'm just finishing taking a leak. <laughs> that, that doesn't normally happen. No. So, yeah. It's a good drawing of the city, though. Yeah. With John Hale in the taxi. And I like the way the the smoke from John's cigarette isn't finished. And that unfinished er uh, is all over the panel. Mm. It's a very good panel. 
his attitude towards the racist taxi driver is hysterically funny. Yeah. Are you going to do another rendition of it? Do you want me to? You could, but will it kill your throat again? Uh, well, I don't know, because I don't know which bit you would like me to do. Have you noticed that the text is so tiny in this issue? Yeah, it was very hard to read. But it's I'll this do, issue, though. <coughs> I'll do the bit when he gets out of the taxi cab. All right, then. <clears throat> don't I get nerved? I can't do Cockney now. Hey, don't I get a tip? That's not Cockney. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that? Don't I get a tip? <laughs> and then John says, uh, sure, it's this. Get a new mind. The one you've got now is narrow and full of crap. Do you like me, Scouse? It's very good. I don't know if it's very convincing. <laughs> Every time I, I think of Scouse, it's always... <laughs> E-I... No, you can't say that. <laughs> but, but then you do it, and it's like, suddenly I, I can... My sister is now married to a Scouse man. I know. And he's a very nice man. I know. So, <laughs> enough. <laughs> we now have them in the family. <laughs> do I have to retire my Scouse accents? <laughs> I'm not retiring any of my accents. <laughs> my, mine are all... Uh, mine are all great. Though, yeah. I don't want to have anyone say otherwise. Even though they're plainly not. Yeah. Um, page seven, John's going to a party being given for Raymonda, who's been mentioned in the past couple of issues we've covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a central character who was in a lot of them. Raymonda was a friend of John who was uh, an old gay man who was the target of several attacks because of his sexuality and was eventually killed by being beaten to death by a group who were taking another of uh, another friend of John's who was staying with Ray. Right. Like, okay. they weren't there for Ray, but they decided to kill him anyway because he was gay. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, page 8 has an exceptionally good line about not liking parties as much as I used to because having fun didn't used to seem so hard. Mm. that I actually found very accurate and touching as I'm creeping up in years. I'd rather just hang around with my mates down the pub than go to a party now. Mm. It's very sad, really, isn't it? Not really, it's just normal. Mm. Page nine, the guy, the homeless guy now, looks like Tim Burton. Yeah. As I mentioned, or Alan Moore. Mm. (laughs) There's a bit of an Alan Moore vibe to him. Page 11... It's Neil Gaiman, it could be both. It could be both, yeah. Page 11, we've got uh, the late 80s, where getting into somebody's pants meant clearing it with them that you didn't have AIDS. Yeah. Produce your little card (laughs) saying that I am clean. Yeah. Because that's all this issue is. It's an AIDS scare. Yeah, and some of it's just so... I mean, I'll get to that when we get to the end. I like the issue, but I think the, the AIDS topic... Is. It's been banging you over the air with its importance. Yeah. We're talking about an important topic. So important you'll do a death talk about AIDS starring yeah. John Constantine. The subtext is becoming text mm. at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some of the art in this is actually quite difficult to read, isn't it? Um, page 13. I was quite sad when Fat Ronnie and Sylvia from Hull ended up dying. Mm. But from, from, from them being at the beginning of names, you kind of knew yeah. where they were going anyway. I suppose so. Yeah, it does seem unlikely. Um, page 14, Anthony invites John into a house. She's listening to Tonight by Iggy Pop, which is a song about a junkie slowly passing away. Mm. And it was written by David Bowie. There was. Giving oh, you Alex a chance to do your David Bowie impression. David Bowie. <laughs> I'm David Bowie. I'm Mick Jagger. Get your pants off. Dancing in the streets. That is the gayest video ever. It's a good song. It's a great song. It doesn't matter what you were. Yes, as long as you are there. So come on. Every guy. Grab a girl. 
everyone around the world. It's dancing. Dancing in the street. Dancing in the street. Dancing in the street. <laughs> oh, I did like your falsetto. That was very good. I was very impressed by that. Um, uh, Bowie recorded a version of this as well. Yeah. Uh, but this is Iggy's version. I listened to the I Iggy presume. Pop version after I read your notes. Did you? Yeah. Alright. Did you like it? I did, actually. I quite like a bit of Iggy Pop. Mm. Never with a bit of Iggy Pop. It's either Iggy Pop or me. So what did you choose? Oh, I choose you <laughs> all the time. The backing vocals are sublime because they're by Bowie. Mm. Aren't they? So it's quite good. I um, bet Mick Jagger gets a lot of backing vocals. Oh, I don't want to know what Mick Jagger gets backed up by. Um, Anthea seems to think this is make-up music. Yeah. It's a good song. Yeah. It's not make-up music, is it? I was listening to it and going... Wait, wait a minute. Sounds like something that should go on Trainspotting. Well, Lust for Life was in Trainspotting, wasn't and, it? And um, Nightclubbing was as well. Yeah. Anyway, carrying after that little bit of Iggy Pop, and you can yeah. never go wrong with a bit of Iggy Pop. Mm. He certainly got his little Iggy Pop out. No, I it. don't want to know. Um, John references to a Hellblazer Swamp Thing crossover. There's no footnote! No. Um... <laughs> where Alec and Abby want to have a baby and so Alec kicks John out of his own body so he can mentally um, take over and use his body um, but Abby says she doesn't want to after all because the baby's father would then technically be John um, so Alec, just to make use of this opportunity gets a tattoo on John's ass instead Does he? Yeah <laughs> Which he doesn't find out about until a couple of issues later, until he's he's with a woman. He says, why have you got a tattoo of a spade on your ass? That's like, funny. Do, do I? <laughs> I suppose he can always just write it off as a bad night out, couldn't he? Yeah. I don't remember anything. Could have been worse. Could have been a guy's name. Yeah. That would have been, you know... I mean, Who's nothing Trevor? Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> why is he tattooed on my butt? Yeah. <laughs> Magical Trevor. Um, page 19 I liked John's internal monologue about breaking and entering which uh, if you're really lucky I'll I'll give you another rendition of would you like that? go on then you know I never met a padlock I couldn't open with five minutes and a bent paperclip I quite like that yeah very good very impressed page 22 it's Alan Moore now you're yeah. not telling me that he's not Alan that's, Moore that's Alan Moore Jacko is definitely Alan Moore he's very Moore. similar to that a famous picture of Alan Moore it's all it's all shadow except for his eyes yeah because there's nothing but beard yeah yeah. I'm a mage take me seriously <laughs> look at my stuff it's perfectly okay for me to write stories about Peter Pan being sodomised but you better not use my characters in one of your stories go home and go home and braid my hair mm. which one of your oh, characters look. would this be last Al- week's breakfast <laughs> Cease. Cease and desist. Um, I quite enjoyed this one. Yeah. I have to say. it was uh, The idea that the unseen people of society can just disappear and using this as a metaphor for the supernatural and the, the AIDS metaphor that you've already mentioned uh, has been done a few times, but and probably done before for all I know. But Gaiman manages to tie this single issue into the previously established mythology of the character and nails John's personality. As usual for this time period, Gaiman manages to hit all the right-on buttons. (laughs) There's a message, there's a mention of the National Front, then an AIDS reference, then how important it is to get checked, and then there's a character that's gay. But, you know, the story's quite engrossing, and has quite a touching ending. Mm. 
for Hellblazer. So I don't mind being beaten up with all these messages yeah. about life. If it's a good story, it's alright to be beaten over the head. I know, but sometimes it's a bit much, isn't it? Mm. You know? Just once I'd like Neil Gaiman to just write a story that didn't have any, you know, write-on elements to it. It's Batman stuff. How much Batman stuff did he write? He only wrote Not two much. issues, didn't he? did the Secret Origins and then whatever happened. Oh, yes, he did the Secret Origins issue, didn't he? Yeah, and it was quite good. I suppose there was a couple of issues of Sandman that wasn't beaten on the head. Yeah. A Maybe one or two. A couple. Somewhere. Somewhere. Uh, what did you think of that one? Uh, I, I, I've always liked that one. No, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a good done-in-one, isn't it? Mm. It's very creepy. I don't it's know. very James Herbert. Yeah. But I don't know what I like about it, because I openly dislike it as much as I openly like it. It entertains you. Yeah. But when you start thinking about it, you're going, wait a minute. To be honest, I think I prefer the art over Neil Gaiman. Hmm. The Dave McKean stuff. Yeah. The artwork was very good in that one. I was very impressed with that one. Mm. What's next, young Michael? Next up, we're moving into the NS era. I picked this one, didn't I? You did. This was my pick. With issue 63. Oh, yes. Yes. Hellblazer issue 63 came out in March of 1993. It's now firmly in the Vertigo banner. Yes. I like to say I think this was the first Vertigo one. Because... This this issue was the first Vertigo one. I think I read that Ennis celebrated the start of Vertigo with the celebration of John's birthday. Oh, right. I didn't remember if this was the first Vertigo one or not. Very good, very good, very good, very good. Uh, Glenn Fabry's taking over with the covers at this point. Uh, this is one of the finer examples of his work. Sometimes he could have looked a bit wonky, mm. especially his women, and especially on the covers of Preacher, Tulip never looked the same from cover to cover. No, but, but I think Preacher's some of his best work. Yeah, so there's some the Alamo covers. Yes, the favorite. Alamo covers are great. This is a great cover. Yeah. This is a fantastic cover. Um, John Constantine looking a little bit older than he has done in uh, in the previous issue. In fact, he looks like a wrinkly David Tennant. Mm. You know what I think? Yeah. Got a bit of a look at David Tennant though, but with blonde hair rather than the, the light brown hair that Tennant has. He sits fag in mouth, which will amuse our American listeners. <laughs> uh, pint in hand. Whilst... He, he wouldn't be able to do that now in Constantine, would he? No, he won't be able to smoke. Have a cover of him smoking. No, that wouldn't be allowed anymore. Well, that's. I'm all for smoking. If you want to kill yourself, feel free. <laughs> don't care. <laughs> Just don't do it near me. That and Constantine as a character is a chain smoker. Yes. Which, in the story arc before this... Dangerous Habits. Yeah, he had cancer. Yeah. yeah. So it's quite an important part of his uh, his character. Um, he sits, as I've said, pint in hand, whilst the Phantom Stranger and the Swamp Thing lurk in the background. The silver ink used for the cover is very effective, as is the Vertigo trade dress. John's drink doesn't look like beer or ale. Looks like blood. Yeah, it doesn't look like a and t either. No. I don't know what it's supposed to be, but... Uh... Was the Hellblazer shining? The logo? Yes, if you'd moved yeah, it to the light with sil- that silver ink. Ruins on the iPad here, but we do have all of Ennis's. Right yeah, we have all. Well, your girlfriend currently has all of my Hellblazer comics. Yeah, she has my Sandman as well, so. So, you know, hurry up and read them. Yeah, I keep telling her <laughs> that. She keeps saying I will, but my Sandman stayed in the same place since I, I said, Luke, I want to take it home. Yeah, but, she, but she's got you now. I know. So. No, I will read it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us all about Forty, Michael. Forty was written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, coloured by Tom Ziuko, lettered by Gaspar, and edited by Stuart Moore. Excellent. John walks home, or to Kit Ryan's home, 
and realises it's his birthday. When he gets there, he sees a note from Kit saying she's gone back home to Ireland and will be back tomorrow at the earliest. He phones Chad, who can't make the time to come round due to work and his wife. He heads out to a corner shop and buys two bottles of Jack Daniels and 60 silk cuts, and heads home to find all of his friends. Hedda, Nigel, Rick the Vic, Chantinelle, Zatanna, the Lord of the Dance, and Mange, John, <laughs> very angry friends trapped in the body of a bunny. Mange! <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's a thing. Should we explain that? What? When I was a kid at school, do you know about this? <clears throat> yeah, if you if you like had an illness or something, you, oh, were, you were said to have the mange, yeah. and everyone said it's now become manky. Yeah. But and people would, oh, he's got the mange, yeah. and you people would stay away from it. What why he's calling that? Yeah, that's very amusing. Because then he says the same age as me, so presumably yeah. the same slang will have populated Irish. Play school playgrounds as, as, as I was. So. Three hours into the party, and John's already drunk. He heads outside to take a pee and hears someone calling his name behind him. He turns around to see the Phantom Stranger and pees on his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're into Garth Ennis territory, are we? Gone is the subtle, dark, sophisticated horror of Jamie Delano, and in its place, we pee on the Phantom Stranger's shoes. <laughs> Garth Ennis. Right, okay. Ladies and gentlemen. About time now. Because of this, the stranger leaves. John thinks about what he just did and laughs about it before heading back inside. <laughs> Hours later, through a single piece of broccoli, the Swamp Thing shows up, having been invited by the Lord of the Dance. Swampy demands to know why he's being called here, and John snaps at him, saying it's his birthday. Swampy is taken back and apologises before John gets an idea. Hedda takes Nigel home, and they return with a small weed plant that Swamp Thing then grows for him. John promises to leave the Swamp Thing alone as he leaves. At six in the morning, everyone leaves, leaving John and the Lord on their own with a bottle of whiskey. The two have one last drink before the Lord leaves, and John goes to sleep, only to be woken up by Kit, who's just come home and sees the mess. <laughs> it was a great ending. It was. It was a. This was a fantastic issue, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, this issue is kind of a sequel to a Delano issue where John turns thirty-five. Um, one of the things about Hellblazer was that it was this arguably in real time. John aged as a real person would age. Um, but by issue 300, John should be 52. Is he? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Right. I wonder if DC picked on this. Maybe Wait a minute, it. he's 52! Wait a minute, 52! New 52! Yeah, let's kill him off now! Let's, there's time for a reboot. This could be important to our story! Yeah, well, So he's probably back to being about 30 then, is he? Oh no, yeah, it's DC, it's that. new 52, isn't it? He'll be 22. Oh yeah, he's something like that, yeah. Oh dear God. Um, page one, the splash page says it all. Dylan's art here is extremely effective. As with the minimum of facial expression, we only see John in profile. We instantly get that John is sad about something. The title 40 kind of gives away what he's sad about. Mm. Although at this point he doesn't actually know it's his birthday, does he? No. He only remembers later on. One of the things about Ennis's art is that... Because Dylan's art. D- yeah, Dylan's art. was Because he started off quite scratchy. Hmm. He looked older, so I thought it kind of suited a 40-year-old John. Mm. But then he'd get younger. And then he'd be uh, rebooted. 
Art-wise, he'd always be younger, but even though he was supposed to be 40 and 50. I suppose it depended who was drawing it, by and large. So, yeah. Dellen's art settled down a bit here. Yeah. From how he started, hasn't it? Mm. The cadaver issue that you mentioned earlier on that we covered in the Vertigo month. God, two years ago now. Mm. That was his first experience drawing Hellblazer, wasn't it? He was covering for Will Simpson there, wasn't he? And then he went away and then he came back and took over as full-time artist. Um, I think so, yeah. So I think that was the first time he'd drawn it. I think it might have been The Lord of the Dance. Oh, yeah, it may have been. That may have been his first experience of drawing Hellblazer. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Because, again, he was covering for somebody else, wasn't he? Yeah. He kind of auditioning for the job. Yeah, probably. Uh, page two, John's birthday is given away on the front of the Daily Mirror, stating that it's the 10th of May 1993, placing John's birth year in 1953, so we were right earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I presume, therefore, that he stopped aging in real time. Probably somewhere. You think? Uh, a large focus in the Ennis years and before uh, was that a lot of John's youth is predicted around the punk music revolution in the late 70s. But, like, still kept into Milligan's room. Well, yeah, well, he'd have been in his late 20s then, so I don't mind them de-aging him so he's only a teenager in the 70s. Well, the thing with... You can be in a punk band any time from 1977 onwards, can't you? Yeah. So if they de-age him so that he's back at being 25, he could still be in a punk band when he was a teenager. But with some of the Milligan stuff, they heavily reference being influenced by the Sex Pistols and being part of the punk scene. The whole scene, yeah. Yeah. So that would make him a certain age. Mm. Because they do actually, they're not conspicuous about it. They do pinpoint when he he is and when he was born. Yeah, they've done that from the beginning. Mm. The the whole mucus membrane punk movement thing was a part of his childhood. Yeah. Well, a little bit older than childhood, but the same thing. Um... Page three, he phones Chaz up, who doesn't look anything like Sheila Buff, <laughs> and uh, he asks him, um, is this the cabbie's answer to Oscar Wilde? <laughs> and Chaz says, off, John, what's this go? <laughs> Which was a very funny line. Yeah. I like that line, I thought that was amusing. And then page four, I thought it was actually quite poignant. 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 As we get older, it does become harder and harder to get your mates together for birthdays and such with even a few beers at Christmas becoming a major undertaking to try and arrange. We pretend it doesn't matter, but it kind of does, especially as we recall that we would all get together for a beer if a day had a Y in it when we were younger. Wait a minute. Every day has a Y in it. Exactly. <laughs> Me and your mum were out every day. Yeah. As kiddies. I say kiddies, you know what I mean. Uh, page five. John has a wonderful line about, uh, how can I be 40? Which... <laughs> went through my head a fair bit last year mm. and continues to do so <laughs> as I'm like wait a minute when, when did that happen stop it do you yeah. see I need help can you not reboot me <laughs> and make me 22 again that would be nice I think if Diddy and DC did have control over over me well over the world they would just keep rebooting everybody yeah yeah that's, that's perfectly acceptable uh, page 6 we have in the past had occasion to slag off the colouring, or rather the printing, Mm. in certain comics we've covered. So let's take a minute to point out when it's done right, as on this page. Dylan's art is really aided by the colouring, with the blacks really being very black, largely because Vertigo at this point seems to be printed on black paper. But it's a gloriously coloured page, this one. Especially the panel in the middle of the page with John entering Kit's apartment, Mm. where the inside's all dark, because obviously there's no lights on. But the light is shining from behind him, 
and so half of his face is lit up and the other half is dark. It's really good, it's really glorious. Mm. Give credit where credit's due. We've slagged off the colouring when it's bad. So we should uh, praise it when it's good. Yes. You got page seven, all of John's mates show up. John's mentioned who they all are. The John's priest. mentioned who they are. John's Michael's mentioned who they all are. Uh, the Lord of the Dances, a tanner, a few others all from past storylines. Um, I did like that this doesn't feel like an episode of Friends. Yeah. You know when, like, Monica would have a birthday and her apartment would be the five other cast members and then a whole bunch of people we'd never seen before. Mm. Whereas here, these are all people from past issues. All of John's mates from past storylines. Not including Zatanna. Well, Zatanna, as you've said, Zatanna's got past with him. Yeah, but I think this is her first appearance in Hellblazer. I wonder if we had to negotiate the the muddy waters of DC editorial to get Zatanna to appear. Mm. Because notice she doesn't say very much. No. And there's nothing much there to point out she's Satana except for the bit when she talks backwards. And the top hat. Yeah. She's not wearing a fishnet, although she passed wearing a fishnet at this point in continuity. No, I think she always has done. Right. Page nine. There's um, a nice bit of contemporaneous humour, as John mentioned, some trouble the royal family were having at the time. Mm. Charles and Diana's divorce. And ties it in with a very previous, very anti-royalist storyline, Royal Blood. Do you remember that one? Yeah. That was a good one, that one. Uh, as well as the mention that Margaret Thatcher may have had help from certain undesirable parties. Mm. I don't know what he's talking about. No? No. We're staying well away from that, are we? Um, page 11. <laughs> as a fart is a wonderful little phrase I used many a time in my youth, but never understood the entomology of. Exactly how is a fart pissed? Is it not like fart is in an old person? Oh, it could be. Yeah. yeah. You old fart, yeah. yeah. I'd never considered that. Very good. <laughs> uh, I suppose we should mention, it's worth noting, given the amount of American listeners we have, pissed in the UK means exceptionally drunk. Yeah. Not annoyed. So having US TV shows where a character says they are pissed is as amusing to us <laughs> as us saying, I want a fag, <laughs> is to you. I want a fag in my mouth. I want a fag in my mouth now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amusing. <laughs> Two cultures separated by a similar language. Yeah. It's very, very funny. The, yeah, the letter the, U. Yeah, they've had the letter U. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Mm. I like that. Page 12. John urinating all over the Phantom Stranger's shoes is a gag Guinness w- Guinness? It's a gag Ennis would revisit in Hitman when Tommy Monaghan would throw up all over the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern. Yeah. I always feel sorry about the Phantom Stranger. I, yeah. I always wet myself laughing reading it and then I'm like wait but that guy's all alone and then he's really and then oh. Poor guy. And then, I, and then I read the issue again and it's hilarious. I never really got into the Phantom Stranger. Must be honest. Uh, page thirteen. John's line about old Adams always was a bit of a softer. After Header tells him that Terry Butcher was left with an inch to urinate with after having his member cut off, was a delicious <laughs> slice of prime Ennis dark humour. <laughs> Very amusing. So the dialogue in this is great, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, page fourteen. I don't remember the talking rabbit at all. Mange. I don't either. He, he apparently shown up in a couple of issues beforehand. Right. Mange. Constantine, do you spike my effing broccoli? <laughs> I don't know if he's supposed to be Scottish. I don't know, but he suits it. He does, he does, he does suit being Scottish. Yeah. <laughs> Constantine, do you spike my effing broccoli? He does, I love how he's got broccoli. Yeah, he does, he does suit. Uh, I, I always liked how, I, I never even knew who he was before doing notes for the show, but 
I just always like the swearing angry <laughs> swearing angry rabbit yeah <laughs> he is quite amusing I'd give you that I love the invite to swamp thing which is simply labelled Mr S thing yeah. swamp <laughs> defying all odds of post office competence it's actually got them <laughs> so fair play to the postal service mm-hmm. they actually found the swamp thing in the middle of the swamp I want to know where the mailbox is <laughs> Yeah, did they just leave it there? <laughs> you just walk up and go, yeah, there's some mail from the swamp thing, and then leave. Mm. Embarrassed that they've just talked to a swamp. <laughs> uh, page 15. Having never read the more swamp thing run, I know. It's on our list of things to do. Uh, I didn't know the Constantine swamp thing backstory. Although now I, I, I know just, that Swamp Thing got a tattoo on his ass. I just knew that none of them liked each other. No, they're not, they're not fond of each other. I did like Swamp Thing's line. I bear you no ill will. As such. <laughs> that amused me no end. That little as such at the end yeah. amused me no end. On page 16, when they come back, Head has gained a new hat. A policeman's hat. <laughs> which is quite funny. Not as funny as having the Swamp Thing grow a herbal plant. Yes. If you know what we're saying. Yeah. Yes. Nigel calls his herbal pant, pant tree beard. Yes. I thought it was pretty funny. Which was quite funny. And page 18, John's herbal cigarette length... It's quite amusing. Where uh, his mate's trying to roll one. I keep hearing about these huge ones you can do, but it sounds a bit of a myth if you ask me. And John's just sat there with his smug face mm. and the huge roll-up that he has created. Very good. Very good indeed. Page 22. Uh, Ennis gets serious on page 22. In his Irish way he does. Yeah, which he, every now and again. Over a bottle of whiskey. Over a bottle of whiskey. Uh, this is actually a very good bit of foreshadowing on his part as he sets up the next couple of storylines, which would culminate in an arc called Rake at the Gates of Hell, in which most of these characters don't survive, mm. which was quite sad. Of course, John doesn't know any of this yet, although Lord does tell him he's in for a hell of a year. This does tend to ignore just how a man who spent the better part of a few centuries as a destitute dropout can have listened to the Pogue so intently. But we'll let that go. Well, everyone <coughs> listen to the Pogues. But even if you're wandering around destitute as an ex-lord of the dance. It's Garth Ennis. Everyone listens to Everyone Pogues. listens to the Pogues my, my, Garth that's, Ennis. That's my one problem with Ennis, though. Everyone's Irish if he's writing it. Everything is centred around Ireland. They're not in the boys. Fair enough. <laughs> now he's moved to New York. Yeah. Maybe he's broadened his horizons. Mm. But I think his early stuff is very... The centre of everything is Ireland. Well, that's where he's from. The centre of the universe is you. There is where he's from, but he's he's these issues are heavily. John goes to Ireland a lot. John is friends with Irish people. John listens to Irish music, and you write what you know. But John wasn't. He's already been like. So you're saying John would have been more into the Sex Pistols and the Damned than the Pogues. Well, I wouldn't say that because... Well, see, because yeah. it's not John who knows who the Pogues are here, though. The Lord of the Dance say, you remind me of the Pogues song, well, you're a rake at the gates of hell. mention them, especially with Kit. Well, Kit probably listens to them. Well... Because Kit's Irish. John's internal monologue quotes Rainy Night in Soho before saying it was Kit's favourite song. It's Kit's favourite song? Yes, but it's he has the knowledge as well. Yes, I know all your mum's favourite songs. Yes, but... No, my thing is, I'm saying John... Is very centred around Ireland as well as the, the, the supporting characters. Well, see, I don't see anything wrong with that. Maybe what? he's just done some journeying over there in between issues. Okay. It never bugged me. It never it never got on my nerves in any way. Um, page 24, as you mentioned in your synopsis, 
Kit arrives home and her reaction to the fact that her flat is a tip mm. is hysterical. It's really good. Yeah. You've seen the state of the place, we lad. You're a friggin' dead man. That may have been an Irish accent. It may not be. <laughs> Who can tell? Certainly not me. Yes. I don't know the difference anymore, obviously. Uh, this was an excellent issue. Largely just an exploration of what a significant birthday feels like. I do wonder how Ennis, who's a year older than me, and thus will have only been about 22, 23 years old when he wrote this story, managed to nail it so magnificently, and if his own 40th was as memorable. Mm. But there are just so many funny moments in the issue that you just read the whole thing with a silly grin on your face. What I thought was interesting about the story was how the tone was completely different to what's gone before. Delano wrote these uncomfortable, slightly icky horror stories, and whilst Ennis's work has the discomfort of Delano's, the gross-out horror factor was substantially higher. On a personal note, having since turned 40, the story seemed more resonant this time than when I read it when I was in my early 20s, but even back then it was good stuff. Ennis's growth as a writer, even from the Dangerous Habits arc, is readily apparent, and it's no doubt that his Hellblazer stands up as some of the finest work ever published under the Vertigo banner. And this may have even been the first issue under Vertigo, we don't know, do we? Mm. That's the level of research that we put into this show. Yeah. What have we got coming up next time, Michael? Next time we had yet another Ennis. Yes, Hellblazer 71. Yes, we have issue 200. Issue 2, as you know, I've never read issue 200. Me neither. Oh, right. Issue 245. By uh, Jason Aaron. Oh, right, we've met Jason Aaron. But yeah, or I've met Jason Aaron. And then issue 275 by Peter Milligan. Right. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So that's next week's issues. If you wish to check out your Hellblazer collections and have a read of them and see what you think of them, or read along, mm. you can say. So next week part two of our Hellblazer retrospective we hope you enjoyed this one I know part, we did part two of what could possibly be three no we'll stick with two thought we were thinking about returning to it well we may go back to it when Constantine comes out so we'll have like a three part with a break in the middle we've thought about looking at Constantine yeah, yeah. Uh, and then after that I'm very excited about Happy Birthday Superman mm-hmm. you're possibly less excited about that for the for the most part not you... most part for the beginning but why Golden Age does wonderful stuff okay. I'm down with a Superman that chucks people out of windows I like to think that when I'm reading it but yeah. it's the Silver Age stuff I think you'll struggle with why because I love it right. but I think you may find it a bit goofy Okay. But anyway, we'll we'll wait and see. So next week it's part two of Hellblazer, and then we're into Happy Birthday Superman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the welcoming to our new home. It's very comfy. It is. We like it here, don't it we? Uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. Do you remember that sunny day? Somewhere in London, in the middle of nowhere Didn't have nothing to do that day Didn't want to do nothing anyway You got a way of walking
fools Wanna be haunted by the ghost Of your precious love Of your precious love First time I saw you Standing in the street You were so cool You could have put out Vietnam All the girls ask What's he like I see Hey kids, comics. I wanna be hard about a ghost. 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 I wanna be hard about a ghost.